your drink? Does your kid drink? Maybe? I mean, it's never too early to start teaching. I think you're joking, but great. Yes, it did. No, I did. I did get the chance to go to a, a Drake and Migos concert. Actually, right after the last uh, podcast recording we, we did, I went later that day, and it, it definitely lived up to the hype. Um, I it was in TD Garden, and Scott. I don't know if you've been to TD Garden before. I don't think you have because I don't think you've been I've to not, Boston. No, I've never been to Boston. Yeah, right. Um, but there's really not a bad seat in the Garden for yeah. concerts. A, you really can't go wrong. So we were like, we got last minute tickets, kind of set towards the back of the upper deck but it was still like you were right there because uh, it's such an intimate stadium for basketball for hockey etc and it was cool like i we got there for migos and we're a little bit confused why they didn't play any of their biggest songs during their uh warm-up for drake and then because they came back out during like the halftime and played their actual hit songs which was pretty cool to get them back out on stage <laughs> during yeah. like an intermission um but then yeah no drake was great uh he didn't Play some songs that I thought he would play, which was fine because he obviously has a lot of music that's really popular. I was going to say he's got so many hits. Yeah, it was a really great time. the The theatrical portion of the the concert was pretty cool. So like some of the stuff that he would do for certain songs, like um, mm-hmm. "In My Feelings," the he one he had was pretty funny. Uh, the like the floor turned into like a cell phone screen, and you get all these like oh, text nice. messages from Kiki and JP. Uh, <laughs> so it's pretty funny. Yeah, uh, but no, it was a viral hit this year. Yeah, no, it was absolutely. I was, I, I joked that uh, with, with the person that I went with that I, uh, uh, the really, he, I was disappointed that he didn't have the. So, he, okay, so early in the show for one of the songs, he has like a yellow Lamborghini or whatever for um, part of the song, just kind of like is suspended up in the air and like uh-huh. flies around the, the stadium. And I was disappointed that he didn't bring the Lamborghini back out for "In My Feelings" to jump out during the song while the car was moving to do the the "In My Feelings" challenge. Uh, very disappointed in him for that, but that, that was that was the that was the only low point uh, to not see the Lamborghini back on stage. I have to say, I'm jealous of you concert wise. Like you got me beat this year with. I mean, I had Arcade no, I don't. Fire, you have Arcade but, Fire, yeah. But but you had Taylor Swift. I mean, that's true. And and Charlie XCX. I mean, that's that's pretty yeah. good in my book. I mean, not as good as Arcade Fire, yeah. Yeah, I mean that was all in one, that was all in one hit. I had Charlie XCX. Um, I'm forgetting the other person who opened for Taylor Swift right now. Um, but, Camilla, Camilla, yeah, yeah, Camila Cabello. Yeah, that's right. And then Taylor Swift, that was good. And then almost made it to a Shadow's Gambino concert, but was about 30, 30 minutes late to it. Um, thinking about going to a Justin Timberlake concert next month, so I'm really like le- leaning into the concert. Man, you're killing it. Oh, actually, and I'm going, I'm going to a Hoodie Allen concert in November, so. Jeez. Yeah. Well, I, we'll call it even for now, but I think you may have me beat by the end of the year, it sounds Yeah, like I, I had Walk the Moon all the way back in January, too, so. Wow, um, uh, that's impressive. A while ago now, but. Yeah, well, so it sounds like one pair of stars uh, came through, but 
Unfortunately, another did not for us on this episode. The sisters' brothers have yet to make their appearance in dear old Winston-Salem, so for the umpteenth time, it seems like we we made a spur-of-the-moment change to the schedule. I think we should Um, start keeping track of a nice little tally of the number of times we we rejigger our our movie schedule, but it's, it's it's actually not out here either, so it's not just you. It didn't end up releasing in Boston. Interesting. Well, I don't know. I don't know where it released then. I don't know what that release date we found was was for. But uh, probably Hollywood. It, it, it did play at um, Toronto, I know. But right. Uh, but regardless, in just a little bit. So in in just a little bit, we will be uh, talking about the Glenn Close, Jonathan Price drama, The Wife, instead, uh, and we'll also be recasting the DCEU in light of Henry Cavill's departure. But first, it's a movie which is being called the first ever mommy blogger thriller. A simple favor. <laughs> The latest from noted comedy director Paul Feig, A Simple Favor stars Anna Kendrick as Stephanie Smothers, a widowed mother and mommy blogger who, since the death of her husband, is putting all of her time into taking care of her son, Miles, and doling out lifestyle advice to the other moms who tune into her blog. That is, until she makes a new friend. Emily Nelson, played by Blake Lively, is mom to one of Miles' friends, but that's about all that she shares in common with Stephanie. Nevertheless, the uptight and high-strung Stephanie forms a fast friendship with the sexy and glamorous Emily, who works as a fashion assistant and is married to an equally sexy and glamorous English professor, played by Henry Golding. However, when Emily mysteriously disappears, it's up to Stephanie to try and uncover the truth about what happened to her, even if it means getting to the bottom of some deep, dark secrets. And I think deep, dark secrets is going to be a theme on today's episode. Um, but Scott critics have hailed a uh, simple favor as a fun, splashy late summer thriller with great performances from its two stars. Do you agree? Yeah, you know, I I thought it was funny that you know back to back episodes we talk about thrillers, and I'm not sure that we've actually even talked about uh, at least in terms of our main kind of critic, you know, the reviews that we go through. We haven't really talked about a thriller before last time on the yeah. podcast, and now we've gotten uh, two thrillers back to back episodes, and it, it yeah. was an, it was enjoyable. I would say that. You know, I, it's no it's no secret that I enjoy a, a nice thriller movie. I I have a soft spot for them for sure. This is I, I won't bury the lead. I don't think this is anywhere near the quality of Searching, in my opinion. But I enjoyed it. There were moments where I thought it was a little bit ridiculous, um, and I thought that there were moments where so there were some loose ends that weren't necessarily tied up. But on the whole, I I have to say that I enjoyed it. Um, you know, any any hesitations I might have had as we meandered through the plot, I think we're made up for kind of like by what I thought was a really entertaining and strong final scene, which we'll save maybe for a little bit later in the show to, to avoid spoilers for now. But yeah, Anna Kendrick, Blake Lively, they're, they're good actresses They're I thought Blake Lively was excellent in her kind of mysterious, sexy role as this, you know, woman who you can never quite put your finger on. And, you know, of course we find out, there are reasons why you can't quite put your finger on what it is about her. But, sure. yeah, and then Anna Kendrick, I know you're a big Anna Kendrick fan. I, I may be a little bit less of an Anna Kendrick fan, but I thought she played her role well. Um, I can't think of, of someone who can come off quite the way that Anna Kendrick does, and maybe that's a weird thing to say, but I just think that she has the, the personality for the kind of role that, that uh, Paul, Paul Feig was going for with, with this particular yeah. particular casting and yeah i think i think she did well i, I it's not going to be a role that i think i'll remember for very long but i enjoyed it and, and kind of one thing i want to add before kind of flipping the question back at you or maybe to even necessarily or maybe this will even get you started as well but i, I really got a uh, gone girl flavor uh from this movie kind of taste in my mouth in a way 
of course, I don't think it's of the. I mean, I'm I'm not the biggest Gone Girl fan. I I yeah. acknowledge that the movie is I think very high quality. Ben Affleck and and uh, Rosamund Pike are both really great in that film. But I think just the the plot and narrative reminded me a little bit of of Gone Girl. And of of course, I think the overall movie is a little bit is quite different. But uh, I don't know if that struck a chord with you at all. Well, I think that it's tr- it's certainly trying to be Gone Girl in terms of. I mean, the, the places that the plot goes and also, the, I think, the audience that it's targeting, it's probably targeting a more adult audience, you know, than, than, oh, even, than us. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I, I'm going to be the curmudgeon on this one because I actually am not a bit, big fan of this movie. Um, yeah. I thought that, uh, I agree with you that the performances are by far the strongest thing in it. I think that Anna Kendrick is... Like, it's scary how believable she is in this role. Like, I... Oh, okay. Interesting. I really I really thought that, like, she... she I mean, she was a... I, I was tempted to go afterwards and, like, look for her mom mommy blog online because I was, huh. like, so convinced that she actually had one. Um, I think that was the perfect piece of casting by Paul Feig. And I also think that Blake Lively is fantastic. And I think that she's getting a lot of buzz, and rightfully so, for this role because I think that she's been an underappreciated actress in the past like she has i don't know that she's really always chosen the best projects um the, I mean, she was really good in the shallows from what i well, remember yeah i was i mean i was gonna mention the shallows but even that is not the type of i don't know like it, it's 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 not gonna it didn't do the type of box office money that this movie has done and is going to do i feel like um and i i don't know that I, I i i i think that this movie is is seen as more even more highbrow than The Shallows, although, I mean, I love The Shallows. I think it's far superior to this movie. But I I think it's good to see her in a role in a movie that a lot of people are going to see, that a lot of people are liking, and a lot of people are are complimenting her performance in it. Um, So, I I mean, I I really like that um, aspect of Blake Lively's performance. But Mm -hmm. I think that from a plot standpoint, from a tone standpoint, this movie is all over the yeah, I, I mean, agree. it does not know what it wants to be, and I think it it wants to be like it, it, in some parts it's trying to be like this really dark, sexy Gone Girl type thriller, but like it's not dark enough, it's not really sexy enough to pull it off. But also, it's like trying to have comedy, like an almost like a game night type vibe from uh, to, yeah. to mention a movie from earlier this year. Yeah. But yeah, like I was, I didn't laugh that often. Um, yeah, it, it's a, it is a weird combination of. I think, well, first off, Gone Girl was kind of the first thing that came to my mind in terms, in terms of, like, the thriller aspect of it. Yeah. But then you also get this, like, I mean, this is, like, a mommy vlog thriller, right? But, like, you also get some, like, weird Fifty Shades vibes from this movie. I don't I mean, like, no, there's no, like, BDSM or anything like that. But the kind of weird sexual tension between so many of the characters and, like, the... I don't think there's anything wrong with this necessarily, but the kind of blasé or, like, very almost forced way that, like, sexual interactions are forced into this movie and like even the way they talk about them i always i felt like they were really trying to like push for some like what to, to what i think this is maybe what you were alluding to right like trying to target maybe that older you know 30 something 40 something mom right. audience to get them to come out for this movie and there's nothing wrong with that i just thought it was a to your point a very strange juxta- juxtaposition of tones when you got like some weird humor injected into it while, like you, all, like um, like I've mentioned already, the the Fifty Shades aspect to it that's targeting maybe like middle aged moms, and then also of course what what I guess maybe what's at its core is the is the thriller 
component of it, which they, they just never really jive together. And it's not that it's impossible to jive those genres together. This movie just doesn't quite capture it. Yeah, and you know, and to a certain point, like I was going along with the plot, like I was, I was interested to see where it was going to go, just because you knew that it was leading up to some sort of big revelation. Mm-hmm. But like, when the big revelation comes towards the, you know, in the final third of the movie, yeah. about sort of, you know, what the whole secret behind all of this is, like, mm-hmm. I wasn't like that impressed with the twist, and like, I, I didn't think it was clever i mean the same twist basically has been and we'll get into it in a little bit but has been done in other movies and better um and i i mean i I, up until that point like i said i had been at least invested in terms of wanting to find out what happened but honestly after the twist like i honestly did not care about what happened in the last third of this movie and didn't really care about these characters i think that anna kendrick i mean i like what they do with the character because she's not what she seems at the start of the movie or at least what what happens throughout the movie changes uh, her or, or turns on a switch inside of her so that she becomes someone different. But I just like I, it was hard to root for any of these people in, at, by the end of the movie. And like I said, I mean, I, I kind of just stopped caring um, because I, I was taken out of it really by by where the plot was going. I just didn't really want to put in the effort um, to to, uh, to you know to try and care about it anymore. Yeah. Um, I think that's but, right. Yeah, but, like, I, I agree. I think one of the things that struck me is that, I mean, I didn't really like any of the characters to start with, and I yeah. certainly didn't like any like them anymore by the end of it. I mean, yeah, I think you kind of feel for Anna Kendrick's character at the beginning because, like, you know, she's obviously... She's a fish out of water, kind of. She's taking... She's, yeah, she, well, she's taking the death for her husband hard. Like, she is trying to do, like... She's put all of her energy into taking care of her son, and she's just trying to do the best for him, trying to be the super mom. And really, she is being the super mom at the start of the movie. And, like, you know, she forms this friendship with Blake Lively, and it's like, you know, you want her, like, you want you want her to have a friend because she obviously needs someone. Um, but she doesn't need Blake Lively, as we soon find out. But, um, but why don't we get into what I think is, that, uh, you know, the strongest parts of the movie, which are the performances, maybe a little bit more. Sure. Um, so first, what did you think about Anna Kendrick as, as Stephanie? I know you've praised her a little bit, but did you did you enjoy this role? Yeah, I think that, I think the thing that I, like, want to emphasize about her in this situation is that she's, she's really good in this role, right? Like, I, I know you're a big Anna Kendrick fan, but, like, yeah. I'm not the biggest Anna Kendrick fan, personally. I, I kind of find her a little bit annoying. Um... And I think she channels that well in this movie, honestly. Well, no, like, and, I think and that's that, one of the reason why it works. Absolutely, and that's exactly the point I was going to make, is that I think that yeah. this character, you know, to your point, is someone you kind of feel for at the beginning of the film. You might like her, you might not, but you kind of feel for her situation. But, like, the whole mommy vlogging, like, to, what you, to your point about that you made at the beginning, that it's so believable that you could go look up Anna Kendrick's mommy vlog, like, it's so annoying, and it's, like, so perfectly cast that it's like hard to complain too much about it it doesn't change the like it doesn't make me like anna kendrick more or less as like an actress generally speaking but it makes me feel like the casting was nailed down pretty well and because she was cast to be in this role she did a pretty good job doing it yeah and she does this thing like maybe this is what you're talking about with being sort of annoying is like she's she's very like perky and chipper in a lot of her roles which i think like you know fits the mommy blogger thing well but what i also think works with this character is there's there's always this like layer behind her veneer of being perky and chipper and like there's always this like like i said this other layer of like 
instability and you wonder like what is lurking beneath the surface and so i think that movie this that this movie plays off of that well because you know there's a certain point where you're you're you know you almost start to wonder is anna kendrick like is she involved in what's happened um i mean that's definitely what they want you to think right like they definitely want you to think that but for me it's just like and I don't know if you felt this way. I, I know maybe jumping ahead a little bit to talk about the plot, but like sure. it just doesn't come together very well. Like it's yeah. like yes, they want they clearly want you to believe that Anna Kendrick might have had something to do with some component of this, but also like th- there's no real evidence to support that other mm-hmm. than just the fact that like you have this she, random she gets with his husband Exa- yeah. exactly. And it's just like super yeah. weird and like honestly not believable at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. That's it's, it's obviously what they were going for, but, like... And, and I don't think Anna Kendrick's performance in any way, you know, hampers that. Like I said, I think that she she plays along with that well, because there is always... There is kind of this layer of instability that you don't really know which way the character's going to go, but I don't... I, I, I agree. I don't think that, from a logical standpoint, it really makes sense in the movie. Um, but why don't we talk about the other lead performance now yeah. with... Blake Lively um, playing Emily. And this is the performance which is getting most of the really good buzz for this movie. Um, So uh, I take it that you also echo that buzz? No, absolutely. I think this is is the performance for me, or this is the part of the movie for me that stuck out the most. I think Blake Lively... uh, I mean, I've been a big Blake Lively fan for a long time. Of what I watched of Gossip Girl, I always thought she was a great great character and a a great performer in that show. And then, you know, I'm a big fan of her in The Shallows... But, you know, what she was briefly in in The Green Lantern, she wasn't the terrib- she was terrible. I was, yeah, I was about to say that. And, like, The Town is something in terms of her theatrical releases that is the one that's caught my eye the most. And I think that she really catches the eye in this movie. I mean, for the very kind of superficial reasons, right? She's, <laughs> she is meant to be this sexy uh, socialite, essentially. Which, if you're going to go for that... Blake Lively is probably about as good as you can do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, almost wrote the role for her, I think, yeah. in terms of her persona. But yeah, she's perfect for the role. She really nails the mysterious aspect of her character, which I'm not going to say that she hasn't done a role so much that before, but really kind of showed that she's not just a sex symbol. She's also this kind of, she can also layer on additional depth to a character. And I think that she does that really well in what she's in what she's essentially able to do with this with this role, what the the license she's given by Paul Feig. And finally, like when she's on screen, she embodies the fact that like all eyes are on her. She commands everyone around her. She commands their attention, she commands their will, essentially. And, you know, this like the lines that stick out to me where she's just like basically browbeating her husband uh or fiance maybe at the time but there's like one flashback scene where she has essentially stolen uh her husband sean's mother's wedding ring uh like family heirloom she admits to sean that she has stolen it and then point Blake tells him oh no we're not giving it back i have no intention yeah. of getting it back oh also meet me in the bathroom in 20 seconds knock twice <laughs> And, and that's the point where Anna Kendrick is like, and you stayed with this woman? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, and he was but, just like, I mean, I, you don't understand. She's just, I, I had to. <laughs> I'm just like, no, you didn't. 
Right. I, I and but I agree with what you're saying because they almost it's almost like what we talked about earlier this year with uh, with Anne Hathaway's performance in Ocean's Eight and the way that they use how you you a lot of people see Blake Lively. So like a lot of people see her as like like you said like a sex symbol like this you know this really glamorous starlet you know she's married to Ryan Reynolds you know they're no, a beautiful not, couple not, they not have anymore, beautiful children right. Yeah, they're, they're still married. Oh, okay. Sorry, my bad. Yeah. Whoopsies. Um, beautiful couple. They Leave have it in. Children, you know, all of this. Oh, but, Scarlett um, Johansson was married to Ryan Reynolds. Never mind. They're no longer married. Though. And now she's dating Colin Jost, as I've just learned. But, yeah. um, but so they, they, they kind of play off of that, and, like, that's what draws you in. That's what draws these characters in. That's what draws Sean to her. That's what draws, you know, Stephanie to her, is that, you know, she's this glamorous person. She is Blake Lively. But then... It's like they use that to draw you in when really there's something completely different going on here. And I agree that I think that she hasn't, we haven't really seen a role like this from her before. We haven't seen like the darkness um, that this role goes into. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think it works most of the time, but not really because of her performance. It's more because of what else is going on in the movie. Yeah, I Um, really agree. Like, like Like some of the things that she performs, to use that word, right, like just seem out of place, and it's clearly not because of something Blake Lively is doing in this film. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if anything, she salvages what she's able to. It's just, like, some of, like, the convert, and I, I know, I'm sure we'll talk about this because it's, like, a pretty recurring, it's pretty much a recurring theme in the movie, but, like, some of their, like, converse, and by they, I mean Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick's conversations between their characters are just, like, weirdly, like, cringeworthy uncomfortable, and, like, not in, it didn't seem like it was trying to make me cringe. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm misreading it, but like, yeah, it just goes in. It goes in weird directions, particularly towards the end of the movie. Um, I don't really understand why they made some of the choices that they did in terms of the relationship between these two characters. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but why don't? Since we're dancing around it now, why don't we just uh, hop into the further discussion of the plot, and we we can get into spoilers at this point as well. Let's so if, do it. If you haven't seen this movie, then um, close your ears. Then, then yeah. Check skip the t- to the next che- section. Check the time check the codes. Time codes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and skip to the next section. But so we, I mean, we, I, I've kind of talked about how I think it's kind of a mess. Seems like maybe you, you sort of agree with me. But what, getting into the the specifics of it, what did you think about the the way that the plot unfolds in this movie? Yeah, some of it's just like kind of absurdist, right? Like, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll start high level and then I'll get into some like more nitpicky complaints. But yeah. I mean, at a high level, right? Like. Th- it's a classic thriller, you know, missing person, what happened, oh, like, was it the husband, is it the best friend, did she just run away, like, yeah. it just gave me so many classic, um, sure, like, missing it's persons. it's like a Hitchcock setup, almost. Sure, I mean, not done well, but it is a Hitchcock no, setup. No, yeah. And, and to get, like, to give an example of a common complaint that I have with this film, is just, like, the little details just don't make any sense to me. I, like, to start off with... What's an example? Yeah, no, I mean, I have so many I could list, but to start off with, like, she's missing for five days before she calls the police. Yeah. Like, five days? Like, the woman did not text you back, and you have her child, and you waited five days to call her husband? And you have her husband just chilling in your house, yeah. Well, yeah, and then, no, and then the follow-up to that is just, like, and then you move in with her husband, like, before you even know that she's dead? I just don't understand. It's just, like, someone just decided to ignore whether, like, any of the small details made much sense in exchange for just, like, the overarching 
I don't know, like gossipy narratives of the plot. Well, yeah, but right? yeah, they want like the you know the sexual tension and everything between Henry Golding and Anna Kendrick. Right, and it just doesn't make any. I mean, and that aspect just doesn't make any sense. Like, I mean, you you almost have like the self the self awareness of the movie through like the detective who's just like, and you're living with her husband. Yeah, which it, who was the actor that played the? the uh, I was actually it just. Wasn't, it wasn't Brian Tyree Henry, was it? No, I think it's Bashir Salahuddin. Okay. Um, I never heard yeah, of him before. You're, you're right. He had a, he had an interesting role. Well, it's just like the movie. I mean, I have to believe that like that character is to like give a little wink and nod to like the eyes, be like, right. yeah, we know this is kind of stupid, but just like, why is it stupid? Then you didn't yeah. have to make it stupid. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. Like those are two small examples. There are like examples later on to. And a, a lot of, like, the plot devices that push the narrative forward are, like, super convenient. Um, and then to just kind of add on a third thing for you to, like, maybe discuss as well, or mention your thoughts on as well, just, like, the humor is very out of place in this movie. Um, the one that sticks out most in my mind is that when she goes and, and she, when she goes to Hope slash Faith, well, yeah, so, so I guess technically Hope is, is her, right? Like, like Lively. Um, right. Hope slash Emily's childhood home talks to the mother and is like car chased down by not the her, her, yeah who's like oh i wanted to order the navy blazer or yeah whatever. i was just like what yeah <laughs> that was just a weird scene in general with like gene smart playing the like boozy old woman um i do but, like a good boozy old woman but that scene just didn't come yeah. i mean like many other scenes it just didn't come it just didn't really come together that well for me but i will i do want to give the plot a little bit of credit um i actually thought the ending scene was really great one of the probably the best scene in the movie for me, um, the final kind of showdown between Anna Kendrick, Henry yeah. Golding, and Blake Lively. I don't know if you like the scene or not, but I just thought well, it was really funny, really clever, and had, then enjoyable. It had some good moments of like when Anna Kendrick like shoots Henry Golding, <laughs> yeah. and I was like, like I said to myself, I was like, well, that was obviously staged. And then yeah. you know they do play off the fact that it's obviously staged because Blake Lively's like, okay, you can get up now. So I like that they're like they didn't dumb that part of it down. But like I said, at this point in the movie, I wasn't I didn't really care that much anymore, and that was because of the twist that I was alluding to earlier. Just with the fact that you know this whole thing can be explained by the fact that Blake Lively had a twin, and like that to me is just such a cliche plot twist. I mean, we talk about Hitchcock; it literally goes all the way back to Vertigo. Yeah, um, you know, in the fifties, and like that was you know that was where. It, we saw it first done. I mean, and then, you know, you think about the prestige as well, Christopher Nolan, right? Same twist, same exact twist. And I mean, I still think the prestige does it pretty well, even though it's a familiar twist. And here I'm just like, really? Like, that's the best you got. That's the only explanation for this. Like, and, and I just like, I, I didn't care anymore because the, the movie just didn't seem like it put in enough effort to try and like fool me in a clever way. It's like, no, actually, it was just a twin, which is like one of the oldest tricks. In the but no, Scott, they were triplets. They weren't twins. Come oh, on. yeah, right, yeah. The other one died in the womb. <laughs> yeah. But, I thought that was uh, such a stupid... I love how she continued to correct people. She's like, nope, I was a triplet. I'm just like, yeah. okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. But, uh, but, yeah, I mean, and then, like, uh, in terms of, like, I was talking about with the choices, like, that yeah. it makes with these characters, like, I don't understand... Like, obviously, it's trying to go for the, you know, the play up the sexy angle of it. But, like, yeah. where, where Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick, like, make out, like, 
Oh it yeah. Was, it was so <laughs> gratuitous. Like it, oh my it God. doesn't and it didn't it did not go anywhere in the movie. It didn't serve any purpose. Like if you want to have that happen in the movie, fine, but like make it serve some purpose in the movie. Like it was ob- it was so obvious that it was just in there for like the the you know, the titillation factor. Yeah. And I'm like it, it, it was just ridiculous. They didn't go far enough over the top, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, it was like it was. It was just something that happened, and then they just moved on from it. Yeah. And I don't know. That just really bothered me. I didn't feel like I could. Like I didn't believe. Like you know, the the scenes between Anna Kendrick and Henry Golding are supposed to be like super sexy, also. But like I didn't. I didn't no. really believe their relationship. No. Like I don't understand why Henry Golding, who's like you know an English professor, like very like you know well off, like glamorous dude. Like who who you know is falls in love with with Blake Lively who is sort of his equal in that uh, sense and then all of a sudden he just he falls in love with like a housewife like I I, I don't get it yeah I mean and also just to, I I agree with that totally and to kind of zoom back out at the end of this plot discussion here I think a lot of what my complaints are with this movie and I think this also speaks to yours as well or at least some parts of it is that this movie just tries to throw a lot of plot devices at the wall, hoping that one of them sticks. Like, one of the most absurd things for me that I was, like, thinking about after I watched this movie was, all right, so there's the life insurance policy, the $4 million life insurance policy. There's also, like, this weird... There's also, like, the whole twin aspect and the sister component, right? Like, and if you actually piece things together, Blake Lively hadn't intended to kill her sister... She hadn't intended to fake her death. She hadn't intended to collect the life insurance policy. But because her sister has threatened to, like, unearth their, like, deep, dark secrets from back when they were 16 years old, she kills her sister. After killing her sister, she decides to fake her own death. She then decides to claim the life insurance policy. And I'm just like, you're a criminal. And you've been hiding the fact that you're a criminal for an certain number of years. And... You bumbled your way through multiple crimes. Like, you committed one crime, you're like, hmm, I'm going to commit another crime. And, oh, I'm at it, I'll go ahead and commit another crime. And we're, like, just not good at it. Like, and I don't understand, I didn't really understand the money angle of it either. Because, like, I don't understand. Well, that's the part she, that frustrated me the most. Why did she care about the $4 million? Like, why was she willing to go to such lengths for the $4 million? Because, like, she's obviously very well off. She has a great job. Like, she's making tons of money, lives in an amazing house, like, knows how to make the best martini in the world. <laughs> um, frozen like, gin, Scott. Frozen gin. Yeah, apparently. That's the secret. But, like, I, I didn't understand. Like, I was, first of all, like, doing something for money is, is another. It's, like, such an old trick or whatever. Like, I, it bored me, that part. But I, I, and then it just didn't make any sense of, like, why does she want the money? Or why, why would she do what she did to get the money? Well, th- that's the thing, though, because... If you actually piece the, like, parts of the puzzle together, she's not doing it for the money. Yet, at the end, she's like, I really want that life insurance money. Like, it just doesn't... Like, if you want the life insurance... Like, she took out the life insurance policy four days before she, like, goes missing. Right? But, like, she hadn't planned on faking her death. So, it's like, the narrative pieces are there. They're meant to make you think that she's trying to make $4 million off faking her death. But, really, she wasn't trying to make $4 million off faking her death when she went and faked her death. And yet, and then is at the end still trying to collect the life insurance policy. It's very, very confusing to me. Yeah, it it, it really, really goes off the rails um, when when the pieces, so to speak, start falling into place. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you I don't think, think that, about this movie too much, 
it still is somewhat enjoyable. Yeah. I do like the last scene. I do want to say that I like the last scene. I stand. Yeah, I stand I'm, by I'm it. Gonna, I'm not gonna go that far, but hey, yeah, I you know. nothing gave me more satisfaction seeing the like shitty dad from like the beginning of the movie hitting Blake Lively with a car. <laughs> like, oh yeah, that was hilarious. Yeah, uh, and Andrew Reynolds, I believe, plays plays him. But, Sounds uh, right. But yeah, before we get into the wrap up, I also want to mention because we didn't really talk about the supporting cast, but I want to mention one performance that I did really enjoy. Um, even though she was only in one scene, Linda Cardellini, who plays like this artist who oh, yeah. has painted, the, who, who's rendered these paintings and that are in Blake Lively's house and Anna Kendrick goes to visit her in her apartment. And I really just wanted more of this character in the movie. I thought that she had great charisma and, and actually did make me laugh, um, you know, when, when I wasn't really for most of the movie. Um, so shout out to her for that good performance. Henry Golding, you know, I thought he was fine. Like, I think that he almost kind of plays a very similar character to who he plays in Crazy Rich Asians, except, like, in Crazy Rich Asians, he managed to do the whole rich guy thing without coming off as, like, a jerk. But in this movie, like, he's a jerk. I mean, he really just wants Blake Lively, man. But also, he wants Anna Kendrick. But does he, though? I don't know, and I don't care. Sounds right. <laughs> Sounds right. Uh, okay, let's move into the wrap-up phase at this point. Um, Sounds what good. Was your fa- what was your favorite scene in this movie? I mean, if I had to pick a whole scene, it's gonna it's gonna be the last scene. We've already talked about parts of it, but I I do really like uh, the fake faking. Even though I saw the fake, I mean the fake death is like super or fake shooting Henry Golding's character is, is super obvious. I do like the follow up where Blake Lively then actually shoots <laughs> Henry Golding, yeah. and um, the the when they go outside and. and um, she gets hit by the car and then like try, still tries to crawl towards the gun and is getting like taunted by Anna Kendrick. I, I do I did enjoy that scene. There are a couple like one-off lines that I really enjoyed in some of the Blake Lively Anna Kendrick conversations about different stuff. I, I did like some of the lines in there and and I did really. Um, I mean, this wasn't intended to be funny. I don't think, but I like legitimately just like laughed out loud when. Uh, Nikki, which is Blake Lively's son, hands Anna Kendrick an envelope in the car from uh, from Blake Lively's character, and causing her to like spin out in the road and nearly cause like a thousand car crash in the middle yeah. of the intersection. Uh, I don't think that's supposed to be funny, but I thought it was funny, um, yeah. and that about sums that movie up. Yeah, so I really just have like one moment that comes to mind, and it's not even like a huge moment of the movie, but I enjoyed like the the suspenseful almost horror thriller like effect of it but there's a scene where anna kendrick is like going through mm. the closet raiding the closet yeah like, i like this scene too yeah, and, and and you know is throwing all the clothes and all all the shoes and everything all over the place and then she leaves the room for a second and she comes back in and all the clothes have been like put back up on yeah. the shelves to, to be fair and it's not a second she like goes home to get to get her clothes and brings them back right, yeah but yeah no that the the, the kind of jump scare aspect of that was really fun Right, that's a, that's a really like eerie moment in the movie, but uh, unfortunately, the suspense didn't really last for me. Yeah, well, um, one thing we haven't talked about at all, which I just want to give some airtime to, because I also think this is just absurd. Like, a totally unnecessary yeah. element of this plot is the subplot with uh, Anna Kendrick's uh, dead husband and her half brother. Oh my gosh! Yes, so ridiculous. This has to be. I, I mean, I'm kind of surprised this hasn't come up yet because this might be the most absurd or like my least favorite part of this movie. Yeah. But like, there's this it's... entire subplot where she has had sex with her half brother more than once, apparently, yeah. to the point where her husband thinks that her half brother might and be the father of their child. The media. 
Yeah, and kills both of them, which is a real a real nice touch by her psycho husband. But it's just like there's just so many WTF moments in like the five minutes of actual coverage yeah. that that gets. I'm just like, wait, what? And it's so inconsistent too with Anna Kendrick's character. I feel like like there's nothing else about this character that would suggest to you that like, oh yeah, she's the type of person who would like have sex with her brother. Like, no, that's like what you would expect from Blake Lively's character. But like, I, I don't know. Maybe that was the point, but I, I was not going with that either. I was Maybe they're more similar than different. I don't know. Maybe, Maybe that was the lesson all along. Um, I think the lesson we should take away as we were about to put a score on this is, is maybe not go see this movie, but nevertheless. Yeah, okay, well, why don't you start us then? Start us off then with a, your score out of 10 for a simple yeah. favor. I, ha- I have complained a lot about this movie, but maybe my scores are going to sound more positive than uh, I've sounded on this movie. Because I, I did think that, like, if, if this movie is being tagged as a late summer splash enjoy you know go out for the on a nice like sunday matinee to have like yeah a, a somewhat nice time right like there are better movies to go see but that like more or less fits the bill for what this movie is that being said i'm giving this movie a 5.4 wow that's exactly the same score as i was giving it which is strange considering it seems like i was a lot more negative on it but i am also giving it a 5.4 um i think that the performances are strong enough to me where it's like it's good enough to, to rank above a five, but there's not really much beyond that to recommend it from my perspective. And yeah, I really, I really thought you'd go the four range based on what you were saying. Yeah, but. yeah, I mean, I could have easily gone there, but definitely, like, if we're talking about these types of thrillers, like, this is in between The Girl on the Train and Gone Girl in terms of, like, how good it is. With Gone Girl obviously being the, the high watermark and The Girl on the Train being the low watermark. But, yeah, uh, I just I feel really like some. Just, there's just some yeah, I feel like just like there's some like Jillian Flynn is somewhere out there watching this movie and laughing at the, at like the, their inability to replicate her like not actually that great like narrative storyline. Yeah, and raking in the dough from uh, from Sharp Objects, which is like went down like gangbusters on HBO. So yeah, I still haven't uh, watched all of it. I've watched the one episode, yeah, but me, I need to me get... neither. Me neither. But it it is it's gotten very good reviews. But anyway. Um, that should just about do it for that film. Um, we're going to take a short break now, but uh, we'd appreciate it if you'd do us a simple favor and stick around, because after the break, we'll be reviewing Glenn Close, Jonathan Price, and Christian Slater in the drama The Wife. Be right back. Hey, now I I don't know if I was the target audience for the wife, but I am a huge Glenn Close fan, so I was there for it. Yeah, uh, but so this movie is the wife is adapted from a novel by Meg Wolitzer, um, and it is a searing drama from director Bjorn Rungi. Uh, the titular wife is Joan Castleman, played by six-time Oscar nominee Glenn Close, and her husband is Joe Castleman, a famed author who has just received word that he has won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Joe is played by Jonathan Price, and at first glance, he and Joan seem to have an idyllic marriage. 
but this is the movie, so you know that things are about to change. As the couple and their brooding son, David, played by Max Irons, travel to Sweden for the Nobel ceremony, discontent and re resentment begin to rear their ugly heads, especially when an intrepid biographer, played by Christian Slater, begins poking around in search of the couple's sordid secrets. Now, Scott, there's not much more I can actually say about the plot of this movie without spoilers, and we'll get into those shortly. Uh, but first, what are your general spoiler-free thoughts on this intense drama? Yeah, no, I think that this movie is actually pretty difficult to talk about without immediately getting into spoilers, and I will try to steer as far away as I can for the time being. But yeah. I think first, and this is the thing that jumps off the page, when you see this movie, when you even like look up this movie, is that Glenn Close is amazing in this film. Like, period. Uh, I mean, we, we were chatting before we started recording about whether, like, cause the, because this movie debuted last year, at TIFF, at the Toronto International Film Festival. We weren't really sure how it qualified or like whether it qualified for the Oscars this year or last year, but based on the fact that she wasn't nominated or in the discussion for nominations last year, we assume that she wasn't up for nominations last year and will be this year. And right as of right now, I can't think of a stronger uh, lead actress performance from anyone that uh, we've seen. And I'm not saying that we've really seen the big hitters of this year yet. I'm sure there will be plenty of challenges as the uh -huh. as we get deeper into the fall and, and into the winter. But Glenn Close is amazing. I think that this movie, for what the narrative and plot of A Simple Favor lacks, this movie you know, really drives it home. I think we've talked about movies in the past that have done a really poor job with switching perspectives in terms of timelines. I think this movie really does a good job not abusing flipping back and forth too many times or too frequently. Yeah. It only flips back and forth about like maybe three or four times through the whole movie. And I never thought it it was doing it too quickly. You always get something substantive when it flipped back and forth and it wasn't like a, a flit, you know, it wasn't like a couple seconds and then, you know, back again, kind of like how a drift was. And I know we complained a lot about a drift on that front, but this movie does it really well. I think most of the performances, I've talked first about Glenn Close, but I think Jonathan Price uh, and Christian Slater are all amazing. I'm not a huge fan of Max Irons in this movie. I think this. No, the, me neither. His, his performance was actually probably the low point for me. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that it's a combination of him and his character. I think that this, this David character, uh, one, is the so weakest. annoying, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, annoying. He's also just like an. Un, he's, he's a pretty undeveloped character, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, and I wonder if that's also the case for the the book version of this or if this was just like what got right. left on the you know cutting room floor for this movie but this, i thought the performance week i thought the character was weak but that is pretty much the only complaint i have about this movie i thought christian slater was great i thought both glenn close and annie stark which i believe is her daughter um were, were great in this film i thought uh harry lloyd who played the younger joe castleman was uh -huh. was also pretty good and the, i mean this movie is like the the epitome or the archetype for the family drama and i think yeah. that the, i mean this movie just does such a good job yeah i am also i'm also very positive on this movie um i think that you know i i, I talked about i think the low point is maybe the max irons performance slash the character um i also am not crazy about the ending which we'll talk about um, okay yeah no I, i'd really love to talk about this because i actually when i saw this movie earlier today with another person we talked for a solid half an hour after the movie about the ending yeah, um, I, I don't know. It, it, it let me down a little bit because the narrative had been so complex beforehand. Um, 
and there was just a lot of subtlety to it. I feel like the ending kind of uh, didn't follow through on that. Okay. But we'll talk about that when we talk spoilers. Yeah, um, we'll get there. But I agree. I mean, I think really, really, really strong performances from the three leads. I, and I, and I, I say three because I think Christian Slater absolutely belongs alongside the other two. I mean, the two main actors in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like his performance is probably going to go down as a really underrated element of this movie. Um, but I think, he, I think he does an absolutely great job and, like, really establishes his character from the beginning as <laughs> this guy who just won't give it up. You know, he, 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 he admires, um, you know, Joe Castleman, Jonathan Price's character, but also, like, not to a fault. Um, and I really like, I really, I really like that, uh, the different dimensions to the, the his character and really just the scene the long scene that he has with Glenn Close in the pub is really just a, a terrific scene um, for, from both actors perspectives um, and yeah I think Jonathan Price as well like you know I, I think you know he, he starts out and you don't really see where this character is headed um, but like as the movie starts to develop like your your feelings on him, you know, completely change. I think, but and uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with Jonathan Price and and the way that this character sort of comes apart at the seams as the the movie goes on. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, really, really like rich drama. Really like it, it, it's definitely saying something, and I think saying it very well. Um, and I was I was definitely impressed, even though I wasn't the target demographic for for this movie. But why don't we talk about um, you know the performances? I think are, are really uh, the centerpiece of this movie. So let's start with Glenn Close. Yeah, I mean I, I can't say enough good things about Glenn Close in this movie. Yeah. I mean I've already gone out of my way to say that I think that she's the best uh, lead actress performance of the year so far. Again, I I do want to acknowledge that we are still you know three to four months. I mean, almost as many as five months, depending on how you count the clock on Oscar movies. But, you know, four months left still to burn uh, worth of movies. To, and usually these are the quote-unquote more Oscar-baity, uh, high-quality movies towards the end of the year that will compete for the awards. But, I mean, this is such a good performance from Glenn Close. I think that she commands the screen. And I think that it's almost it's it's almost hard to overstate how amazing this performance is in my mind because not only does she command the screen but she commands the screen in such a way where it's not like she is dominating no her presence doesn't take over the set or the scene Uh, which which maybe says something about her character in this movie too no absolutely i think it absolutely does and i think that that's what's so masterful about it yeah is, is that like even though she commands your attention she is not commanding the attention of the people around her she's not right taking over a scene that she's in, but she just is, it's an understated performance when it needs to be. And it's emphatic when it needs to be. And I just think that Glenn Close does such an incredible job balancing that dynamic of when to, you know, dial it up to 11 and then when to dial it down to one or two. And she always like throughout this entire movie maintains a consistent aura of who she is who she wants to be, and even in the moments where maybe you learn a little bit more about her, you mentioned this bar scene with Nathaniel Bone, who's played by Christian Slater, you know, that scene, you're like, oh, maybe we're going to get something we haven't yet seen from Glenn Close's character, a different dimension. And I think you do get a different twist, but still there feels like there's this consistency of exactly what I expect her character to be like. Oh, yeah, you know, maybe she's let loose a little bit, but she still holds her cards so close to her chest, and she does such a good job you know, 
play, playing that role. And, you know, I know Glenn Close best from her time on Damages. I really loved that television show. And, I mean, she's yeah. been in so many... I mean, you've already said it. Like, she's been nominated so many times for so many different things. But, you know, I can't see how she's not going to get another nomination for this for this performance. Yeah, I think that that's a great description of it. And I think one thing I want to highlight about her performance is, like, the non-dialogue acting that she does yeah. Um, yeah. with, you know, her facial expressions in a lot of scenes. Because there's a lot of... You know, there's a lot of scenes where they're out and they're socializing and, you know, she has to put on a persona. And I mean, in some sense, she's always putting on a persona, but especially in these scenes. But you can see, even though she's saying one thing, her face is saying something completely different, especially like one moment where I, I particularly noticed it is like the first scene when they arrive at the hotel in Sweden and, uh, you know, they're being they're introdu- being introduced to like all of the Nobel people. But then we also uh, meet the photographer, um, mm-hmm. who her name is like Linnea or something. Yeah, I think it's um, Linnea. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's this very beautiful young lady, um, and like this, the moment when she is introduced to Jonathan Price and like his reaction, you know, to to meeting her and like seeing her and stuff, and like watching Glenn Close during this moment is is brilliant. Like because you know her 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 reaction says it all and. As we learn more about the Jonathan Price character, we understand why her reaction is what it is. Um, and so I think that it just seems like that. And, you know, another scene later when he's giving his Nobel Prize speech, when, you know, one of the big climactic scenes, um, obviously she doesn't have any dialogue during this scene, but she's the focus of the scene for, for various reasons. And I think really owns it again with her with her facial acting. So I think that that's you know another another element that really just speaks to how strong this performance is, as you have noted. Yep, absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, so let's talk now about Jonathan Price. You know, maybe in terms of awards, he's not an actor that has as much acclaim as as uh, as Glenn Close, but I certainly think he's someone who's been doing great work for for a long time, and and this is a, a very strong performance, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think that you you talk about or you alluded to a little bit earlier how maybe the way that you feel about Jonathan Price's character Joe Castleman at the beginning of the movie it certainly uh, it evolves, we'll say, over over yeah. the movie. It changes. You know, I I won't give any spoilers away yet, but like that, your opinion of him clearly changes over the course of the film. You know, for better or for worse, I'll let you watch the movie and and see for yourself. But I think that. One, I said this about Glenn Close's character and how I really liked how I felt like there was a consistent character throughout the movie and that it never really changed even in the moments where there was like variation in you know what what you see on the outside and I and I do think that although it's a little bit more nuanced in some ways I think that Jonathan Price does something similar I think that he really goes out of his way to maintain you know a consistent character throughout this movie even though what you are seeing from you know Jonathan Price, what you are seeing from his character on screen, changes dramatically as you right. get you gain more and more insight into his character. And I want to, I mean, I will give credit to like the younger versions because some of the stuff that you're learning about these characters is coming from their younger personas from like the 1950s uh-huh. and 60s. But I I think that he captured Joe Castleman, played by Jonathan Price, captures this perfectly. Like you see his you know in public persona. And you see his in private persona, and they are not similar whatsoever. And you know the the Joe Castleman you get in public 
is very different than you know how he treats his son, for example. You know, we we talked about, or <clears throat> we talked about, we weren't particularly pleased with Max Irons' character or his performance, or and David Castleman, um, Joe and Jones' son as a character. But it's undeniable that you know the character itself, as a almost as a prop for Joe's character, is incredibly telling. Yeah, and you know some of the lines he has are just so jarring, so bitter. Yeah, yeah, so, so so bitter and like awful, but also so like believable, and yep. also like in a in an almost darkly humorous way. And that's something that I think I haven't really com- commented yet on this movie. But it is. I mean, there are some funny moments in this movie, and I think when you describe when I describe it as like you know this is an intense drama and all of this that that probably doesn't come across. But there's a lot of very dark humor in it, and I did find myself laughing, especially in some of the scenes with, you know, where they're confronting each other, and Jonathan Price is just saying these things that are just, obviously, they're, they're so awful and so hypocritical that you almost just have to laugh, like, at, uh, you know, how how ridiculous that his character is kind of being. But, but it is, I mean, it's believable. He's just someone who has, is so egomaniacal that he can't, really see you know the the reason why he has achieved all of this success um, yeah i mean one of my i think oh, i'm jumping the gun a little bit on this but my favorite scene in this movie or what i will say is my favorite scene is one of the scenes that you're describing or is this line where i think they're all in the car going to to one of the nobel events right and it's joe joan and uh, david in the car and david yeah. i mean a constant theme for david or, or kind of his like primary sub subplot is this you know, seeking approval from his father for in his writing, right? So, like, David is also a writer and wants his, you know, Nobel Prize winning father to approve of the writing that he's doing. And in the car, he's getting some feedback. And, you know, he, he, one of, one of Joe's critiques of David is that he doesn't take constructive feedback very well and he wants everything to be perfect on the first draft and nothing's yeah. going to be perfect on the first draft. And then proceeds to say, yeah, I mean, it's like some of your characters are like super cliche. You have a blowhard husband and like a stoic wife. Right. And just like <laughs> it's, it's so cliche. Yeah, it's great yeah, because like it, most it, of the people in my theater laughed when that line was. Said. Yeah, I was I was also in pretty much a full theater. Everyone just died laughing during that line, and because yeah. it's just like it's exactly what you described, right? It's so believable that he's so naive and so you know hypocritical, hypocritical, yeah. and his head so far up his own ass that he just doesn't doesn't see what like how what he just said is so ironic. Yeah, and I think another example of what you're talking about is, like, the scene where uh, they've been separated for the day, and, like, he comes back, or they... Oh, yeah, this is an awful scene. And oh. he's been back, he's been, er, and he's been back at the hotel, and he just starts berating her, and I can't remember exactly what the line is that he says to her, but there's some sort of, like, sexist almost about, like, you know, how could you go out and be by yourself or whatever, when all along he's been out, like carousing with this other woman like and it's just like you, how are you yeah. i mean you're you're really one to talk like he's, it was, and he's criticizing her for like drinking for having a drink in the middle of the day that's what it is um yeah that was such a cringeworthy scene and yeah. like i mentioned in our discussion of a simple favor that it was cringeworthy unintentionally but like this scene is so is so meant to be cringeworthy and yeah it was visceral my reaction to like the stuff that he was saying because you know of course she doesn't know what he's been up to yet uh, he, she does find out, but like he's saying, "Oh, like I came back here. I've been, sit, you know, standing here because I've been worried sick about you." When in reality, like he would be off having sex with this like 
Linnea yeah. can't like photo person if you know he hadn't just like totally flubbed the interaction. Yeah, exactly. So let's at this point, why don't we talk about the plot in a little more detail and spoilers? I mean, I think we've hinted at a lot of stuff so far, so hopefully we haven't really given anything away. Yeah, but I don't I'll, think I'll, I, we really haven't given away the key the key to this yeah. movie yet. So. And I'll, and I'll start off by just saying that I actually, and I made a, I made a Facebook post about this, but I had this the twist, I guess if you want to call it that, ruined for me about 20 minutes into the movie. Uh, and, and, and I will say, like, I don't think that it's like they're really trying to hide the ball with this twist. Like, I don't think it's something that they really like. Wait, did you see the, so did you see the trailer? Yeah, I've seen the trailer before. I mean, I thought the trailer was like heavily implying the twist. Okay, well, I don't, I don't remember getting that from the trailer but i probably didn't even pay that much attention to the trailer i don't know but like 20 minutes into the movie like this woman leans over to her husband and this is like before the, like right at the start of the first flashback scene so like before we even got any of the flashbacks this woman just leans over to her husband and goes like loudly whispers where everyone in the theater can hear because it's a small theater it was her words and I was like, well, there you go. Um, and, you know, I, like I said, I probably could have figured it out on my own because they don't really hide the ball. I mean, it's not a thriller, you know, like they're not trying. It's not like a simple favor where they're trying to, like, you know, hoodwink you. But, like, you know, they, they that's what I, what I will say is I, I had the twist, I guess, if you want to call it that, spoiled for me. And yet I was still very invested in what was going to happen, where where this movie was going to go after the big reveal. So I think that speaks to the strength of the storytelling. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I So maybe, I, I mean, I don't know what it was, but like I th- thought that I knew going into this movie exactly what the twist was. So I'm not sure if I got that from the trailer or if I had it spoiled yeah. from online somewhere, but like I went into this movie, sat down like first scene, and already n- knew what the twist was. Cause I, and I honestly didn't even think it was supposed to be a twist. But, like, clearly yeah, I... I don't think that's unreasonable, like... But I also think that not everyone is going to figure it out. I mean, I didn't figure it out from the beginning, so. No, no, I don't think that... I mean, I think that they unre- they they give you additional clues over time. I think that, like, Absolutely, most yeah. people probably would have figured it out by about, like, the halfway point in the movie. And, and there are clues early in the movie, too, that once I... Once the reveal happens, I, I went back and thought about them, and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Which is, like I've said before, is what you always want in a movie where you have like a, a plot twist you always want to you know be saying oh i should have seen that because that means the movie wasn't stringing you along yeah no i think that's accurate which is also why i never like doubted what the twist was right so like yeah. to your point like i thought i knew what the twist was going in and had that confirmed for me pretty early i was like okay yeah like this is definitely what's going on in this movie yeah. um and i and to your point which i think is the real key that we should be focusing on here that you know, knowing the twist or like having the twist spoiled for you does not take away or detract in any way from the experience of watching this movie. Because yeah. yes, the twist is an important part. Like when you do fully understand exactly what's going on, when you do fully understand to talk full to talk full spoilers here. Like when you do understand that it is Joan and not Joe who are writing all these novels. Like that is an important realization and an important change in your perspective on the movie. But I think that. No, even knowing that from the first scene, which in the ca- is the case for me, I still think like this movie is an incredibly powerful film, and the way that the relationships and the interactions between characters take place on the screen between Joe and Joan, between Joe and David, between Joan and no, and um, I'm sorry, Christian Slater's character whose name is Nathaniel. Nathaniel, yeah. Nathaniel, yeah. I think that that is the attention grabbing part 
of this movie. And yes, the actual like plot points and narrative arcs are interesting, but they don't rely on the twist to make them interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. And I want to discuss, you know, before we finish up, definitely want to discuss the ending. Yeah. Um, let's, let's do like an, and, an, an annihilation esque deep dive on the ending. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, kind of what I was hinting at earlier, I think this is such a, a complex movie. There's, there's a lot of subtlety to it. It, it has a lot to say. Um, but, and I think that having Jonathan Price's character die is just kind of a cop-out. You know, it's, it's one of those things I've talked about before. Mm. You know, my English professor in high school said, like, don't have this ending. Or, like, it, 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 you know, it's, it's like you don't, under, you don't know how to end the story, so you just decide to make the character die because, like, you know, that's everyone kind of knows what to do with that. And I, did, I mean, I did like the very last scene where, where she's on the plane, Mm-hmm. Um, like I thought that, that was a good scene, but like I don't know if like having Jonathan Price's character die really like ultimately cemented anything for me that wasn't already cemented. Yeah, I think that is a valid point to bring up about the movie. For me, and I don't think this is necessarily—I don't think this is a, goes against what you're saying. But for me, the like more important scene in the ending is not his death but the the scene on the plane, right? So yeah. I think there's just so much baked into that final scene on the plane after he after he's died from the heart attack at you know, when they are returning home uh to the US and you have her final conversation with Nathaniel and then you have her like looking at her you know, her journal, right? The 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 journal that she takes her her, you know, writer's notes in, right? You know I think first part you know, if you want to break down the scene, and this is what I'd like to do, even though I think we might agree on a lot of points here, you know, you get the you get the moment where she talks to Nathaniel, she tells him, "No, you're wrong. Like what you were implying in our one-on-one conversation in, in the bar in Sweden was inaccurate." So she's, yeah, we know as the audience that she's lying to him about this, right? And then she, second part of the scene, she tur- then turns to David and says, "Oh, you know, when we get back to the U.S., I want to tell you and your sister everything that's happened." And then, like, the third part is when she is in looking or, like, writing her in her notebook that you can tell that she has, like, scribbles of, you know, characters and right. how to, essentially how to portray them and, and bring them to life. And she turns, turns this, to the blank page. She turns yeah. to the blank page, right? Which, say, I think, I mean, we could probably debate what this means, but I, I think it means that she's going to write a new book, right? She's going to write one more book. I mean, yeah, that, that's what it seems like. And, and now she, it's like she has a blank page in her life because now Jonathan Price is out of her life and she can she can sort of start over, so to speak, in the sense that she can actually write from her own name now. Because, yeah. because, because society has reached a point where, you know, whereas in the 1950s she couldn't have actually had success as a woman writer, or at least that's how she felt. Um, but, but can like, she in 1992, though, either? I'm not sure. Well, I think, I think more so than, you know, at the... At the beginning of the, I mean, that's the probably or, I mean, then when she began writing, that, that's um, fair. So I think I think that it, it it signifies that too because I think it just signifies that there are a lot of new possibilities for her, and maybe in that sense, the Jonathan Price death ending works because it does lead to that moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, so, so that's actually the point that I wanted to bring up because I think yeah. that well, one there's there's multiple layers to this, but I think that this is the reason why I don't have a problem with killing off. Uh, Joe Castleman in this in this movie, and it's because yeah. first the conversation 
with Nathaniel, right? Where she had, where she ultimately doubles down and decides like, look, you know, I'm, I was going to leave my husband. Uh, we, you know, yes, we had this arrangement where, you know, maybe it started off as a partnership at some point in the past, like in the, in the fifties and sixties, but by the end of it, she was the one doing all of the work. She was the right. one doing, making all the creative ideas, all the characters, bringing them to, to the life. Or he didn't even know the character's name. Exactly, exactly right. Like the, it wasn't a partnership by the end of it. She was doing, she was doing the whole thing. Uh, yeah. it, it, you know, maybe, maybe the the trademark. You know, the the apprentice surpasses the teacher, so so to speak. The you know, the student sure. surpasses the teacher. If if you want to take it that far, I mean, you can Even also. Though she was almost the one in in the position of superiority from the beginning, because I mean, apparently his his early writings were just he was a hack. Right, ex- exactly. I think that I, I meant more that just like she was, he was literally her teacher. So I was right. kind of yeah, literally into that. speaking, yes. Um, but yes, no, you're right. So I think it's a, a really powerful thing to think about in the context of this film, where she has decided she could, you know, besmirch and you know bring to light the truth about his work or her work, so to speak, uh, not even so to speak, but like literally her work, and she chooses not to do that. Right. I think that's. That's super interesting for her character because I think that that means, one, that she's ultimately deciding that whatever work she has done is fine with it not being revealed to be hers, right? Like, I had, yeah. the, like, one of the conversations that, that I, that the person that I saw this movie and I had um, were, you know, what is important to, like, her identity, right? Like, you have all these scenes in the past where she, you know, she talks to Elizabeth McGovern's character, and, you know, the, a very memorable line where Elizabeth McGovern, like, kind of rolls her eyes at her, like, honey, you know, writers have to be read, not writers yeah. have to write. And she traded in her identity as a woman to be for her identity as a writer. And I think that's, like, a really important part of her character. And I think that you see that re-emphasized in these final moments where, like, you know what? What was important to me was that, as a writer, my work was acknowledged and read and shown to be good enough to receive a Nobel Prize. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't need to go back and change that because my identity, at, my like other identities just aren't as important to me as that. Uh, I may, you know, I could be over-reading like, the identity uh, subplots of this, of the thing, but that, that's something that really resonated with me in that like first conversation with Nathaniel. Right? And then you have the second conversation, uh, well, not even really a conversation, where she just like makes a passing comment to David where she's going to like tell him and her and him and his sister the whole thing the whole truth and i want to get your thoughts on this right like do you think that she's going to tell them the truth or do you think she's going to double down on the lie i don't know it's not really something that i thought about i guess i mean i get i I guess i just assumed that she would be telling the truth um i think that to me i kind of saw it as well she just has this monkey off of her back now in more ways than one and so that there's nothing really stopping her from telling them the truth. And, I mean, she clearly loves her children. Like, I, I love that scene where they've just had the huge fight and then the daughter calls them on the phone to tell them that she, her child has been born. And, like, yep. instantly the both of them are, like, hugging each other and it's like the fight never happened. Mm-hmm. Like, I love, I love that scene because it shows, like, well, they see, it, it, in the midst of all of this, what they care about the most is their family. Uh, so I think that now with Joe out of the way, like, I think there's really nothing stopping her and, and she probably feels like she owes it to her children to tell them. Yeah, because for me, I, I, I think I agree, right? Like, I think for the most part, I, I agree that she's going to tell them the truth. 
But it just yeah. crossed my mind, right? Because I think it's a little ambiguous because David doesn't know because like the everything that happened could be how how their father died, right? Like that she was threatening to leave him or yeah, whatever. Like she was true. unhappy with their marriage, right? Yeah. I think that I'm probably I, I, I cheated on her. All day. I mean, that ex- exactly. Exactly. I think that could be what the whole truth is. That being said, I do agree with you. I think that she's really talking about just coming clean about how she wrote all of the books. I mean, right. and and two, and David basically. I mean, he by the end of the movie, he's at the point where he also thinks that she's written the books. Right, which is why I think that that ultimately it is that yeah. it's going that direction. Um, and one other one other element of this last scene, which one other conversation that happens, which I think is also important to what you're talking about, is when she speaks to the flight attendant. Yeah. And the flight attendant, the same attendant that they had, you know, in the first flight in the start of the movie, says to her like, "Oh, you yeah, know, so sorry special. about your husband. Like, but we, I could tell you had a wonderful relationship." And and she's like, "Well, how could you tell that?" And the flight attendant's just like, "Well, you know, just the way that you were with each other." Um, so I think that that goes a lot towards your. Your, your point about identity as well. Yeah, no, I just think that I, like that conversation was so interesting. And then I think the the final point, and we've touched on it briefly already, so we don't have to spend too much more time on it. But the the page, like turning the new page on yeah. in her in her notebook and what that signifies, and you know whether she's right. I I think that she it definitely signifies she's writing another book. But I am curious whether you think that this is a book that she'll publish. Yeah, I, uh, again, it's not necessarily something that I thought about, but like, mm-hmm. like I, if she's I, not, if she's like not going said, to come out and tell, if she's not going to come out and tell the world yeah. that she wrote all the books before, is she going to publish under her own name? Is she going to publish under a different name? Is she going to be like a posthumously published book? Is she going to publish it at all? I think that I'm like overreading maybe yeah. too much into that into that part of the, but but it's a it's a thought that crossed my mind. Because of what the scene, like the events that happened right before it, when she's denying that, you know, she, um, she wrote all of Joe's work, and because it's like hard, it's got to be hard, right? Like she can't write this book, publish it under her name, and not get people to think they're like, oh, this looks really similar to some other. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I guess my thought was that she was going to publish it under her own name, and it was going to have sort of a story similar to her own life i guess um well yeah i think that's right yeah yeah and 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 so maybe in that sense they wouldn't look at it and say oh this is the same person who wrote these novels because it's going to be more of a non-fiction work Mm, Uh, that's an interesting point yeah no but i like that i i I mean i also think that what you say what you're saying is makes sense like how can she come out and write this novel it's like how how you've had this novel in you all along you mean you have you've never written it until now like yeah I don't know, but but I, I mean I think the fact that there are all these questions speaks a lot to the depth of the movie. I agree. Why don't we move into the wrap up phase now and talk about uh, your favorite scene or moment? Yeah, like I mentioned already, my favorite my favorite moment. I think I, I think I have to go with a moment for this one is in the car. Uh, the three, the, you know, the Glenn Close, Jonathan Price, and Max Irons. I've already described the scene, so I don't need to draw it too long. But you know, the very naive. Uh, ignorant, arrogant line of, oh, your like characters are, are too like cliche. You know, you have a blowhard writer and yeah. stoic and the stoic wife, and, and it just like is the the, the whole that, theater left. I thought that that line took place in a different. Maybe I'm just maybe I was wrong, but I thought that that, that line happened when they were like in the hotel or something. It might. It might okay. but yeah. Anyway, your point still stands. It's a great line. Yeah, but, and then um, and then it, to just to like enter a little bit of differentiation here, since I already sure. talked about that, 
I also really enjoyed the uh, essentially the lead in right to his heart attack right where she's just they're just screaming at each other and she's like I I'm so tired of enduring the humiliation of you telling everyone else not that like you're giving credit to me but that like you're so arrogant that you tell them I don't write right and it's like it's so I just really love that it's like not the big things that like made their yeah. relationship so toxic it was the little things it's microaggressions yeah, yeah. um I'm going to go with a, a more comedic moment because I do think that one of the things which I really enjoyed was the the dark humor in this, as I mentioned earlier, and a scene you pretty, uh, sort of st- uh, soon before the one that you just talked about. I mean, so it's towards the end of the movie as they're leaving the Nobel Prize. Yeah, I think um, I know what you're going to say. And, and they're you know they've had they've started having this really intense argument because obviously she told him multiple times I don't want to be thanked during the the speech and he ends up making the entire speech about her. Um, and, you know, they, they get fed up with each other and to the point where Jonathan Price is trying to get her to take the Nobel Prize from him <laughs> and she won't do it. So he throws it out the window of the limo and then the next shot you just see is like the limo a, driver. a pendant or somebody like picking up the, the um, uh, prize from the street and being like, oh, we've, we've got it, sir, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and it, 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 was, it made me laugh. Yeah, she was like, what did you just do? <laughs> yeah um okay Oops. uh put a score on it yeah i mean my only major complaint about this movie right is is max irons and that kind of the the loose thread that is his character of david but you know besides that i am such a huge fan of this movie and for that i'm giving it a 9.0 yeah i'm gonna go just a tad lower 8.5 um you know, I still think I have some some things I'm thinking about, um, but I, I definitely think this is a movie which I might go up on with a repeat viewing, but also obviously very high on it, even from the beginning. Absolutely, so. yeah. Uh, okay, well, like I alluded to earlier, we've talked about a lot of deep, dark secrets today, um, but we here at Some Like It Scott try to always be upfront with you, our loyal listeners, so you can trust me when I say that we'll be right back after this break to discuss some movie news and recast the DCEU. Be right back. We watched it a little bit late to the party, I believe. Yeah. But yeah, we both watched it kind of back to back. And just to talk about that one first, um, you know, this we're we're into the second season now, and I think for anyone who is afraid that it may have been a one 
one-hit wonder, a one-season wonder, so to speak, uh, I think is going to be pleasantly surprised because I think the second season, in many ways, is is equal to the first. Um, And, you know, it's interesting that this is a show, when you, you just read about the premise of it, you watch the trailers for it, definitely does not sound like something that I would uh, be a fan of. I mean, I've made it no secret before that I'm not a fan of scatological juvenile humor like that. And certainly this show does have its fair share of that. Um, well, more than its fair share of that, just based on the setup uh, of each season. But um, I think that it, it it manages to be so smart and clever. It's so clever. Um, it's such a clever show. Yeah, in the way that yeah, and number one in the way that it spoofs, uh, you know, other true crime, yeah, documentaries, making a yeah. murder, serial, um, yeah. advantage, stuff like that, um, and so the, the way that it, you know, it plays on the tropes of those and, and puts them in such a ridiculous scenario, Apply, applies, you know, these really serious investigative reporting techniques to such a ridiculous, absurd setup yeah um, even is, to the point of the title sequence of the show i remember yeah. spoofed so hard on the making a murderer title sequence yeah. that i i was dying laughing just at the title sequence and how they tried so hard to make it similar yeah and so so there's there's that element to it which i love and but then there's also just this show has like it has like serious profound messages for like our time our our moment in time and like it seems so weird to say that about a show where like the entire second season is based around who committed these poop crimes um but like the last episode and i just finished the season yesterday it's only eight episodes and the the final episodes like the final episode well the final two episodes but especially the last episode i mean they like will hit you heavy and like they have some very very intelligent very like things that need to be said about social media, about, you know, bullying in, in high school. I think this one, this um, season really takes on high school athletics in a really, um, a really pointed way. And I was pretty blown away by the last episode of this season, probably the, the best episode of the series thus far. And, you know, I'm not sure what direction they can go with this in the future, but I'm certainly down for more seasons of American Vandal. Um, in, in whatever the setup may be for the uh, for the crimes that that Peter and Sam are investigating. Um, yeah, now I so, I really liked this show's first season, and I when yeah. when no, I remember we talked briefly when we heard that it had been essentially renewed for a second season. That mm-hmm. you know the first season was awesome. It was clever. It was intelligent, and like you've described about the second season, you know it hits you at the end with a really powerful message about maybe the stereotypes and prejudices we have against, you know, the your quote-unquote jocks or, you know, your your kids who don't really take school too seriously and, and how we should maybe take a step back and not make too many assumptions about the people around us without getting to know them better. And, you know, I'm really so happy to hear the second season is following through on that and delivering the goods again. And, you know, if, if they can do it with two seasons, if they can keep doing it three, four, five, I'm... I'm happy to keep watching. I know that I haven't got a chance to watch any of the episodes yet, but I want to. Yeah, no, and I'm excited uh, to talk about them with you when you do get around to watching them. But speaking of a, a show that blends humor and pathos in a really uh, incredible way, um, BoJack Horseman is one such show. I mean, I, I've made it no secret that I think this is the best show in television right now and has been for the last 
two or three years. Um, I've been watching this show literally since the first season dropped on Netflix. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people, a lot of critics weren't huge fans of the first season. But since then, like, it has gotten pretty much universal acclaim, and it is considered one of the best shows on TV, um, and I, I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, this show, like, on the on the out, you know, sort of in the same way of American Vandal, on the outside, you know, you don't expect to learn so much about life from a show, an animated comedy about a, you know, depressed horse uh, who was the star of a... a t- TV sitcom in the 90s and really just about his life and you know these other characters that that um you know are, are in his orbit um but this show ha- somehow finds a way to uh you know really uh rev- strip its characters down to like the, the they're very rock bottom um in, in such an emotionally like the characters are so emotionally vulnerable in the show and like it makes you as the audience kind of emotion emotionally vulnerable um and just a lot of the things that these characters go through whether it's um with their families whether it's you know bojack's sort of inner turmoil with uh you know his his perpetual need to like try and recapture that stardom that he once had in the 90s um like i think that it's just so relatable um even if you're not you know even even if your your lives don't mirror those of the characters like it, there's, you're going to find things which really hit close to home, no matter who you are. Um, and But at the same time, the show is hilarious. I mean, the, there are there are references in the show that are pop culture references that are so specific that I'm like, I don't understand how anyone other than me is going to get this jo- joke. But that's what I love about it, is that there's prob- there are probably thousands of other people who are sitting there saying the same thing. Um, that somehow they find that this niche where these re- they have these references that are, are so specific and for people who like are you know are super into pop culture like myself, but you know still manage to connect with a large audience. Um, and I you know I know a, a plenty of other people who are fans of the show. And I mean the voice cast obviously is amazing. Will Arnett as BoJack, Allison Brie as Diane, uh, Amy Sedaris as Princess Carolyn, Paul F. Tompkins as Mr. Peanut Butter, and then you know the. Ca- the cavalcade of guest stars that they they've had over the past five seasons, like pretty much anyone you can think of, has done a a, a voice cat a voice role in this uh, TV show at some point. And, you know, a lot of them even playing themselves. And I who think has H. John Benjamin played? He played it himself. Oh, of course he did. He, he loves John he, Benjamin. He loves playing H. Like I love that yeah. they just have him on. I think that's like a very recurring thing to just have him on as himself in like yeah. television and, shows and now. A, a, another one of my favorite recurring characters in the same vein is is uh margo martindale the <laughs> a- actress who is known in the show as character actress margo martindale and <laughs> every time she's referred to as she's referred to as character actress margo martindale and does all this crazy stuff like rob's convenience stores and um <laughs> it's it's crazy but uh if you haven't seen the show like you like i said you really are missing out on the best that there is out there, in my opinion, right now. Obviously, you know, not super into TV, but for me, this show is head and shoulders above anything that I've seen, um, and I uh, hope that it will continue on for for many more seasons because I think there's still a lot of stories to be told in Hollywood. Um, so, definitely strong recommendations for both of those shows. Really? Um, so, People versus OJ Simpson, not touching it. 
I mean, yes, but also I almost think of that as more of a movie. Like it's a mini series. It was, it it's, was a mini. Yeah, I mean, it was a mini series. Yeah. Like it's not like BoJack, where I've been with these characters for the last five years. You know, mm. it it doesn't. It, it's not the same to me. Although I agree in terms of quality, like they they are they're equal. I mean, BoJack. I mean, People vs. OJ is a masterpiece as well. Um, but moving on now. Um, no Schmodown discussion this week. But, uh, we haven't done a discussion topic in a while, so we wanted to, to kind of dive into one this week with the big news coming out of the superhero movie world that Henry Cavill, who of course has played Superman in three films now, um, he announced that he is stepping away from the role of Superman. And Scott, uh, this decision has left many people, including myself, speculating about the future of the DCEU um, after, of course, they, they've had a lot of critical flops recently. Um, and there are still a few other <coughs> DCEU films slated for release. Of course, later this year, we have uh, Shazam and Aquaman. And next year, there's supposed to be a Wonder Woman sequel. Um, God, is Shazam, but, is Shazam this year? I, I, th- I think it's this year. Oh, boy. It's, it's, it's docketed. Um, yeah, it, it's but, definitely but there's, out. there's a growing feeling that the, the comic book giant may call it quits on this iteration of its lore and try for a full reboot in a couple of years, maybe after they put out that Wonder Woman sequel. Um, so with that in mind, we thought that it would be fun to come up with our dream cast for that potential reboot. Um, and so why don't we just dive right into it? We're going to go through the what I think are probably the big five in the Justice League with mm-hmm. Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, and Green Lantern. So, Scott, yeah. why don't you start with your pick for, in my opinion, the greatest of all superheroes, the Cape Crusader, Batman. Yeah, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show started that, uh, I mean, I, I should say I was saying before the show started that I actually think Ben Affleck is a pretty good Batman. I think that he's underrated because he is surrounded by a cinematic universe created by dc that has just been so disappointing created by an overgrown 13 year old named Zack snyder sure so yeah. i won't hold back yeah you know you won't um that's fine i think that that criticism comes from a place that a lot of people can understand i have been very disappointed in how the dc has produced movies especially when you think about like a decade ago when iron man was coming out for marvel like they were i mean yes they were trying to create a cinematic universe but they were just hoping to touch the coattails of what chris nolan was doing with batman right Uh, and And now they've just so far surpassed dc it's crazy oh yeah no it's it's absolutely insane so but to get more back to the point i do think that in an ideal world, I, I'd love to have Christian Bale back as Batman. Um, I mean, I mean, actually, I mean, I should take that back. I wish I had Chris Nolan back as director for Batman. Of course. Actually, I don't think this is a hot take, but, like, there are a lot better potential Batmans out there than Christian Bale. But he did a good job for, like, the, the Chris Nolan version of Batman and what Chris Nolan wanted out of that character. Yeah. That being said, um, if I had to recast... Batman away from Ben Affleck. I would wonder if we could keep it in the older, the older people genre, and I, and I actually think Daniel Craig might could do a pretty good job as as a Batman. I think that it would definitely bring a different personality to the role, right? Like I don't think anyone disagree that you know J- James to have someone who played James Bond, which is why I ultimately think that would, it's unrealistic, right? We wouldn't actually be ever casting Daniel Craig in this role, you know? He's, Probably, yeah. Uh, 
I can't use that he's British against him because Christian Bale did it fine. But yeah. uh, I think that the steely aspect is, is kind of a, a, a look and a feel that Ben Affleck went for, which I actually kind of liked a lot. I understand there's a lot of criticisms around like the darker Batman in the DCEU, one that was willing to hurt people to the point of even killing them, which is something that is, very, is highly questioned, right? I think that... Daniel Craig, though, could really pull it off if you're going for an older Batman. If you want to go the other direction, though, and you want a younger Batman in this, in you know, your DC Extended Universe, your reboot, right? I think that Taron Egerton could be someone okay. who could pull it off really well. He's done. Re- I thought he's done a pretty good job in you know the Kingsman series. I'm not personally Kingsman, sure. a huge fan of those series, but you know he he has been known to be good in that role, and I like the look, the potential that uh, a movie he's in later this year has for in terms of the the action adventure kind of genre right and that's uh robin hood and he's playing robin sure. hood and robin hood later this year sure yeah i think that's a great pick and i will say that i i did go with the younger approach pretty much across the board um I think that's fair. and yeah. it just it just so happened after i uh you know after i looked at my list of who i had picked for every role that i had picked someone from that everyone I picked has been in a movie we've talked about this year. Oh, um, cool. And I think that I, I, you know, I think that speaks to, I'm, I'm trying to find rising stars kind of, um, mm-hmm. for the future of this. But I, but I also think that going the other way is the, the approach, it, uh, like taking the other approach with older actors also might make sense. Cause like, I mean, you know, you think about Marvel think about the MCU, like Robert Downey Jr. was the one who started everything off. And certainly he wasn't a young actor at the time when he took on the role of Iron Man. And yeah. we really haven't seen like, young actors really playing a huge part in the series set i mean until tom holland i guess um yeah it's it's really been established people for the most part but i did take the younger approach and so for my batman i'm going with someone who actually we've already talked about on this show show and that's henry golding um i think that he has he has the look i think that he has the charisma um to, to play Batman, and I think that his character can go in, in either direction, kind of what you're talking about. We, you know, we can do the steely Batman again if we want, and I think that, I, I, you know, I agree with you that I don't think that's necessarily the wrong way to go. I think that the reason it felt wrong with Ben Affleck is because in some of these movies, like, the dialogue and everything was just so bad that, like, it, it the fact that they, they were taking it so seriously just made it sort of, like, heightened comedy almost. Yeah, um, I agree with that. And and so I think that Henry Golding is someone who, if you want to go with this, you know, darker turn, he, we saw him play a, a darker role in, in a simple favor. But if you also want to do something more lighthearted, um, you know, kind of like the MCU has has made their name off of with that balance between, you know, humor and, and heart um, that they, they do so well. Um, I think that he can do that as well. And he showed that in Crazy Rich Asians. Um that he can pull that off as well. So I think he he would be an interesting choice to see for Batman. Um, moving on, I guess, now to, to Superman. Um, Why don't you I'll go first us, this time? Yeah. I'll kick us off, yeah. Um, and I am going with someone who... So I, I, I was trying to think, because to me, this is one where I think the look is really important. Like, I think that we have an image of Superman, and, you know, I think that there's certainly room to to mix it up when it comes to casting in the dceu but i think that like superman's look is one of those things where it's just so iconic that you have to get someone who captures that look so it took me a while to think about who i might choose but once i thought of this guy i thought yeah he would be perfect and that's blake jenner um who i 
first became a fan of a couple years ago in a movie called Everybody Wants Some, which of course talked about before. Love that movie. Love, love that movie. Um, it's sort of an ensemble piece, but I guess you could say his character Jake is the main character in the movie. Um, and but then you know this year we talked about his role in the movie American Animals, where he had more of a supporting role, but I think also did a great job in that movie. But I think he has that clean cut, like all American look that you expect to see from a Superman. Um, and I would just, I would be excited to see, see what, uh, he could do with this role cause he's still young as well. Yeah. That's such an interesting, interesting casting. I hadn't thought about that particular one. You know, I hear what you're saying about the look and feel of, of Superman being such an iconic thing, but I, I went maybe a different direction and actually wanted to shake up the Superman look. Okay. Um, and I think Scott, like, I don't know if you thought that I would try to work this actor in at all because, you know, I think he's my, I, at the, you know, episode zero of this podcast, I said he's the, Yeah, he's, I, I, I did think this, and I, a lot of people have actually rumored him to be Superman, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I would really like Michael B. Jordan to be Superman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that would be cool. Like, I think that it would be interesting, but I don't know if I see him in the Superman role. Not, necess- not, not necessarily because of the whole look thing. I just don't mm-hmm. know if he showed a side of his, from an acting perspective, um, yet that that really gives me hope that he can play Superman. But he's such a great actor that, like, you know, I'd be interested to see him try it. Like, absolutely. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that he does hit that. He hits closer to that in Fruitvale Station, I think, than maybe you're giving him credit for it. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I still feel like there are a lot of differences between the characters, but... Um, yeah, uh, oh, but, yeah, you know, okay, no, I don't, I don't mean to, com- to compare uh, the two characters, but I mean, like, the... Yeah. I, I hear... I, maybe I misinterpreted what you were saying, but it sounded like you were saying that you don't think he has, like, the... He hasn't necessarily demonstrated the range of this, like, altruistic yeah. hero who will do anything for anyone, and he pretty much is, like... He's OP, right? Like, he's just overpowered... Hero, yeah. Because even Oscar Grant in Fruitvale Station is like a flawed character. But like when you're talking about Superman, you're talking about someone who like his flaw is kryptonite, and that's pretty much it. Like, yeah, I I, I would want. I call that weakness. Yeah, I would want to see him play a more like straightforward hero, maybe before I would believe that he. Because I mean, we saw he was great as a villain in Black Panther. Sure. Um, I mean, like, yeah, I think some... Uh, maybe Creed would be the best example. Well, that was about what I, I was going to say, too. I think but... there's a great example, and that's kind of my point. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, um, why don't we move on to Wonder Woman now, who... Uh, yeah, I think that we'll both agree that the Wonder Woman film with Gal Gadot is definitely the highlight of the DCEU. Yeah, I mean, she's fierce, and it's exactly what you want from Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah. From, from the moment that you that she's introduced in Batman vs Superman, which I don't even know if you've seen yet. Have you seen it yet? No, that's that's one that I have not seen, but I have seen Justice League. Okay, yeah, fair enough. But like the moment she's introduced in Batman vs Superman, you immediately get the sense of like, oh wait, like this movie is Batman vs Superman, but like also Wonder Woman. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. She kind of really commands the screen. Kind of steals a couple scenes from Henry Cavill and Ben Affleck in that movie, and yeah, it's. I know that this is a this is an exercise in recasting, but I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. at all because well, she's so I mean, good. I, I think that's perfectly fair. I mean, like I said, I think it is the high point of the DCEU. So maybe you know, if they're recasting, they would say, "Well, here's something we did right. Here's a way to get people hooked into this new DCEU uh, when maybe they're going to be skeptical yeah. about 
after how bad the last one went, maybe we just keep it as Gal Gadot. Like, I think that totally makes sense. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I mean, you can kind of do that. I don't know how, like, you're not super familiar with comic books, I, I don't think. And I, I mean, to be fair, I'm not either. But one of the, like, the rumored Flash movie that they were going to do, they actually, like, remade into Flashpoint Paradox, which yeah. is... Uh, it is actually a, the reset comic book storyline for their rebooted sure, uh, sure. new 52 series from back in you know like four or five six years ago now yeah. so they could just use that like refresh the series and keep the characters they want to keep like if they want to keep ezra miller they can they, they yeah. can keep basically it would allow them to keep the actors and actresses they want to keep but right. at, that, at this point now, I don't even know if that movie's even happening. Like, I think that it's it's possible they will shut down production of all new movies and just like release the movies they're having coming out in 2019, kind of like you described with Shazam and you know Aquaman later this year, and then Wonder Woman 1989 or whatever that I forget the like, 1984 maybe I'm not sure I don't remember the the year date on it, but uh, Wonder Woman two essentially, and then just shut up shop on the rest of the movies. But anyway, yeah, I, if, if I did, sorry, to actually get to the point, if I did have to sure. recast Wonder Woman, I think I'd choose uh, someone who, again, we've talked about already this year, but I was like racking my brain for like action adventure women stars, and it was actually kind of hard to come up with one. Yeah, um, that's and, part of the problem, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but I landed on Alicia Vikander, so. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good choice. Also, someone that I did think about in this. Um, and I, just to touch back on your point, like I did hear about on Collider Live, they were discussing like the whole Flashpoint thing, like you were talking about, and how, and they were they were discussing it in the context of, well, here's a way that you could leave Gal Gadot in the franchise, but have all new, you know, people around her without losing like the narrative. Yep. Um, but I don't know, you know, again, like you were saying about the feasibility of that. But I so when in, in thinking about Wonder Woman for me, like I think there are a lot of I didn't. I honestly, I didn't just think in terms of action adventure because, like you said, there's limited options. Um, but I, so I, I think there are a lot of like really up and coming actresses at the moment. Like I thought about like someone like uh, Zoe Deutsch or Haley Lou Richardson, who I talked about last time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, they just didn't have the right feel to me. Yep. And the person that I ended up going with was uh, we saw her in Thoroughbreds earlier this year, Anya Taylor Joy, um, who I really enjoyed her in Thoroughbreds. Um, thought that her performance had a nice balance of, of dark humor and like savagery to it. Um, but also loved her in the witch. Um, you know, the very, very underrated horror movie from uh, a year or two ago. And I, I think I would, I would be interested to see, you know, we haven't seen her in big budget movies yet. Um, and I think that this would be, she would be someone like Gal Gadot who comes in and maybe not a lot of people know her name. Um, even though she has been in some movies before, but like really has a chance to to you know have a star making turn in this role. So that's my choice. Although I agree with you, honestly, I think Gal Gadot. Like it's hard to think about this character without thinking of Gal Gadot. That's how much of an impact she she made in such a small yeah. time. And if you wanted um, like a more mentoring older Wonder Woman, I did think like on the other end of the scale, like Angelina Jolie, maybe. But yeah, um, yeah, that's only it depends on what direction you want to go. She considers herself a director now, though. I don't think she's she's really taking on acting roles, but, you know, maybe she would come out of retirement for Wonder Woman. Yeah, maybe. Um, okay, I'll, I'll get us going next with the next uh, character, which is Flash. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll say, I actually was, I liked the casting of Ezra Miller in Justice League, but, again, the movie was just so bad that, like, I, I 
now can't associate the Ezra Miller Ezra Miller flash with like anything positive. Really, well, well I, uh, honestly, Scott, though, like I know we didn't talk about this in the other podcast, but like I was really excited about the Ezra Miller casting for the Flash, but like yeah. I really felt like he phoned it in for the movie. He just didn't oh, yeah, care. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I don't think his performance helped it out. I mean, it helped the fact that the movie was really bad out at all. Um, yeah. There's just some some awful awful lines of dialogue um, that he has and, and he doesn't help himself out. But um, I was just thinking about him talking about brunch in Justice League and it's just a horrible, horrible uh, Triggered. passage of dialogue. But, yeah. but, so I, but I did want to think of someone in the same vein who's like a young, energetic actor. I mean, even younger than the people that I've been talking about so far. Um, so I've decided to go with Alex Wolf, who was in uh, Hereditary earlier this year. Really, that was the mm. first movie that I, I saw him in. Um, and I, I thought about him because I actually first thought about his brother, Nat, who I've I enjoyed in some other movies, um, like Paper Towns and uh, Palo Alto. Um, but I thought about his brother, Alex, because he is younger, and he just came off a, a performance in Hereditary, which I think is, is stronger than those performances that his brother has done, honestly. I think that I was really, really impressed with what he was able to do in that movie, um, alongside people like Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne, you know, like really established actors. I think he absolutely held his own with them in a movie that isn't very, is, is pretty difficult to, to act in. I mean, like it, it asks a lot of you as an actor. So I would be interested to see what he could do with this role. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I wanted Ezra, I wanted to like Ezra Miller in this role. I didn't. So it wasn't difficult for me to want to recast him. And I'm a little bit biased here, right? Uh, so bear with me. But because of how displeased I was with Ezra Miller's performance, I immediately thought, walking out just like, oh, well, if only The Flash had been Grant Gustin from the TV show. And so I would recast The Flash as Grant Gustin because I think he's an excellent Flash from the, oh, the okay. TV show The Flash. Interesting, yeah. I don't know if you've seen uh, any episodes of that, but he, like, I no, think I'm he... I'm certainly familiar with it. But. Yeah, he perfectly nails Barry Allen for me. Well, great. Um, well, let's move on to our final character then, one who uh, is kind of a laughing stock at the moment after the uh, the very failed Ryan Reynolds uh, oh, yes. film, uh, and that's Green Lantern. It's such a shame, because Ryan, Ryan Reynolds could be a good Green Lantern. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for me... Who you, who you got, yeah. Well, okay, so this is kind of a... It's not a joke. I don't mean this as a joke, but like I want, I want this to happen, and that like, yeah, because this is also rumored to, to happen. But I want Tom Cruise to be Green Lantern. I just like, oh, yes, I like, amazing. I like the idea of it too much because like Green Lantern, it can totally be this, like if you're gonna reset the DCU and you, if you do want to go younger castings for most of these people and have like one of the mentorship roles, I think a Green Lantern just from a sense of if you know the backstory of Green Lantern at all and where they come from, like it makes sense for that character to be the more experienced one of the DCEU to kind of mm-hmm. mentor the younger people involved in it and in, in the Justice League, so to speak. <clears throat> and so to have an experienced person on the roster, I just don't think you could go, you could find a better person than Tom Cruise. I mean, it's hard, you know, I can't argue with that. Like I've said before, I think he's the best action star maybe of all time. Um, and so, you know, like you said, you can't you can't you can't argue with him. Like you can't think of anyone better, really. But um, I I didn't go with Tom Cruise. I you, so you had a black Superman, and I decided that I would go with a black Green Lantern. Um, I mean, how how Jordan is a black Green Lantern? So yeah, well, I, yeah, and as as a tribute to my image of Green Lantern, which is from the you know the animated, animated show when we were yeah. when we were young kids, which is quality programming. Um, 
And so I chose John David Washington, um, who I think... Oh, good call. Good uh, call. Yeah, I think that he could bring the gravitas that I think maybe, like, the Ryan Reynolds portrayal was maybe a little too... Silly. Like, silly. <laughs> too <Yeah>. Deadpool. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think that he could, he could definitely bring... Um, the gravitas to that role, but also he has that same charisma that his father has. I mean, I know that we've only seen him in Black Klansman, really, um, but you know, you could you could tell even from that one role that like he has that that it factor that his father has, and so I think that he would be someone great to give the Green Lantern character a positive name. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've really missed out is like how to work in. <laughs> all of the, like, excellent MCU characters and actors oh, into, yeah. into the DCEU franchise where they just, like, essentially monopolize all of the comic book movies. I mean, someday, like, I feel like that we're gonna we're gonna reach that point. Like, I feel like Kevin Feige's gonna be like, how can we go up from here? Like, how can we go up from the F- Infinity War parts 1 and 2 or whatever? And the only, the only uh, option is we're gonna have, like, Avengers versus Justice League. Okay, um, it's like a video- and it's just gonna be it's a just complete never cluster. Gonna- it's never gonna happen, though. Like the like rights wise, they'll never do it. Yeah, prob- you're you're probably right. But uh, oh, the Indians just walked off against the Red Sox. Uh, sorry, I'm excited. Leave but, it in. Um, we'll leave it in. We'll leave it in. Leave it in. Um, <laughs> second night in a row, we walked off against them. Um, but but yeah. So so there you have it. Um, DCEU. I mean, I guess as sort of a coda to this. I mean, I was certainly no fan of Henry Cavill. Um, I, I think Man of Steel is probably the worst superhero movie I've ever seen. Oh, um, that's tough. And, <laughs> that's a tough one. But but I worst yeah um, okay. It, it's tough, but like I will never forget sitting there watching that movie and being so spectacularly bored, like I've never been in my life. Um, so I, I just don't associate Henry Cavill with anything good in the DCEU world. But you know, a lot of people are mad about this like a lot of people swear by henry cavill as superman so i, I was just kind of wondering as sort of a, a punctuation mark on our conversation what what how did you feel about henry cavill as superman there were moments where i really liked henry cavill as superman um and there are moments where i didn't i think that he gave so few shits in justice league and yeah. just could not be bothered to turn up for it at all um which really disappointed me because I, I did I didn't dislike him. I think that, like, you have to put things in context, right, with... You talked about, like, a certain image and a certain kind of uh, way you hold yourself when you're playing Superman. You're this altruistic, overpowered uh, individual who saves the world and saves every person that, you know, he can uh, whenever it comes to his attention. And I think, you know, my experience with Henry Cavill before that was not in that sort of role, and I was a little bit concerned when he was cast as Superman. But, you know, I came in with an open mind. I Yes, I agree that, like, Man of Steel is not the best super superhero movie of all time. Um, and prob- in fact, it's the worst. <laughs> well, yes, and, and, you know, perhaps, at least within... I, I will silo my thoughts to the Superman series of movies. It's probably the worst Superman-dedicated movie that there is out there. But that being said, I don't think Henry Cavill like was bad as Superman. Like the problems come, or the problems I should say, lie a little bit deeper than the surface, which is of course the surface being Henry Cavill. And yeah. I didn't have a problem with Henry Cavill. I mean, so much of me thought that like based on the casting of the DCEU, the like 
your acting potential or like your delivery potential should be like through the roof, right? Like you have Ben Affleck, Henry Cavill, yes, not like an unproven actor, but still like n- notable for the work that he had done. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Gal Gadot, who I think blew people away when she came on the scene as Wonder Woman. And, you know, you, you keep adding people in. Ezra Miller, very good young actor, like should should not be as bad as he was in Justice League. You know, people have their own thoughts about Jason Momoa, but like he plays the hardened, grizzled uh, characters, at least in the past. He's done that fairly well, if not a little bit controversially. Uh, I mean, he's not... Um, you know, he's not, he's not going to be someone who is, like, the A-list of A-list people for that role, right? But but your potential is high enough where if you can deliver a solid product to your actors to then execute on, you should be able to knock it out of the park. Like, I mean, Batman, with maybe the exception of Spider-Man, is, like, easily the biggest property in comic book, in, like, comic book history, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And the fact that they can, like draw and by that i mean you know the people over at the DC, producing the dceu whether that's jeff johns or Zack snyder whoever you want to point the finger at like the fact that you can deliver a product that has almost universal displeasure from your fans you know i think that speaks volumes to how how poorly they managed you know this product and whether they continue on this venture that is currently known as the dceu or they try to reboot it or whatever they do like they just need to clean house over there and like get someone who has a better sense and like better and better knows what they're doing with it. I mean, yeah, I I absolutely agree because I think you know, I'm not as familiar with the comics or very familiar at all, but like so many people who are invested in this world feel very strongly about the fact that DC has better product than Marvel, honestly, uh, in terms of what they have to work with with the comics. Um, so yeah, I think that's, I, think I that, mean, that, that tide is changing, right? But like... Yeah, but that's because of the movies. And I think yeah. that a, a good movie franchise, which is very possible, is what I, is kind of the point that I'm making, is like there's obviously, I mean, there's obviously so much to work with um, that we sh- it should they shouldn't be having the struggles that they are. But I think that, you know... That, like they, they just started their new streaming service and stuff, so I think that they they have some like some room to have a jumping off point with that, and you can use that as momentum into you know something uh, something new in terms of uh, a film franchise, which I think they definitely need to keep pace with Marvel. Which honestly, you know, you can, you can't say enough good things about what Kevin Feige and everyone over there has done. Yep. All right. Well, let's before we finish, let's uh, move into our new segment just a few items uh for today's show so carrie fukunaga has um moved in as the new uh director of, of bond is it 25 yep that's 26 right. 25 um, i don't even remember who it is that he replaced at this point which is probably bad it's danny boy um, he replaced danny, danny boy that's right um but of course fukunaga most known for you know, producing for the first season of true detective um and he wrote. Also, he, he wrote the first season of True Detective. I don't know. If and, yeah, and, and produced. Yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, he also uh, was one of the screenwriters for It last year, which was you know great. I Did, think we we both really enjoyed. Didn't um, he direct it? That movie. I uh, don't think he directed it. Oh, okay. Um, but yes, he was very involved with It. Yes. Um, no. It. It was. Um, can't remember oh, Mushinet. It's Mushinetti. Hispanic, Hispanic Mu- guy. I mean. Yeah, Mus- um, Muschietti or whatever his name is. Yeah. 
Um, Fukunaga was going to direct it and then dropped out. That's right. That's, that's right. right. That's right. That's right. Uh, so we'll see because it, it does seem like he has a history of sort of parting ways. Like, of course, that's what happened after with True Detective. Like, after the first season, like, there were, like, some creative differences, I think, and he ended up splitting. And I forget who took over during the second season, but... Um, it, it, you know, it was very different, I think, but we'll see if he, if he sticks around for Bond 25, but I think it's, it's an interesting choice. I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see what sort of, how he puts his own unique stamp on a franchise, which has become pretty familiar. Yeah. I think it was just Pizzolatto that took over for him in True Detective, who was his co-writer from the first season. That's right. I seem to remember though there was a lot of like hostility between the two of them, but um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the bottom line was that I don't think Fukunaga <laughs> wanted to make a second season because just like they had a, one story to tell and that story was really tight and really well, yeah, well done. And then the, the HBO put a lot of pressure on them to to do a second season, and uh, I don't think Fukunaga had the willpower to do it just because he didn't have the story to tell. Um, that's just fair enough. You're probably right. Um, Second item, and it seems like every week now, or every episode, we're talking about some sort of new Me Too controversy, unfortunately, and like, this is the latest one, um, I, I'm not sure if you've heard about this, but it has to do with The Predator, um, which, of course, was just released a couple of weeks ago, um, number one at the box office last weekend, but has been uh, a, a bomb from a critical perspective, um, but Shane Black, of course, is the is the director and writer of the Predator reboot. Um, he's 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 a well known name at this point. Um, Iron you know, Man three his, director. Of course, he he made his name doing small stuff like um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but uh, he's he's worked his way up and and did stuff like Iron Man three, like The Nice Guys, which he's really made a name for doing that. But um, he's definitely besmirched his name a little bit, not only with the quality of the Predator, but um, there's. He's drawing a lot of heat, and rightfully so, because he there's he, he's cast a friend of his in this movie uh, in the in the Predator who is a registered sex offender, um, and not only that, but apparently the scene it's like it's it's basically a bit part, but the scene that the character has a that the the guy plays the character the character is like flirting with Olivia uh, Munn's character the entire time, and so like that's his gag in the movie. So it's really just a really unpleasant situation. And Olivia Munn was the, was the first one to sort of speak out about it. And Sterling K. Brown also has voiced his support for, for Olivia Munn. Um, but a lot of the other cast members have been kind of mum on it. And, and I mean, that's has Shane Black, I think. So, yeah, you know, obviously very unfortunate having to talk about this kind of stuff every, every episode. Well, it's unfortunate that I've talked about this episode because, like, people just are still being garbage. Yeah. Um, the bottom line, right? Like, people just... I mean, it's just so stupid. Like, why do you... In what world did he think, he, first of all, that was a good idea? And, like, second of all, did he be able to get away with it? Yeah. I mean, especially when... It's just so stupid. Like a registered sex offender? Are you serious? Um, I mean, he, I mean that same person also. I think this was before he became a registered sex offender. But like that, that same actor also was hired by uh, Shane Black to star like a, in a, like a bit role in Iron Man three and like other movies he's directed. But I think that that was like before. This he, guy must have some serious blackmail on Shane Black. That's all I can figure. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. That's it's not whatever it is. It can't be good. But yeah, I yeah, like it, it's a shame because this is just. It's just disappointing at this point, right? Like, 
ugh, I don't understand why people would do this. Yeah, um, but anyway, on a completely different note, um, we we got an announcement this week of a, of a reboot that many people have been waiting on for a long time, and that is the new Space Jam reboot, um, which Ryan Coogler will be directing and which will star LeBron James um, in, of course, the role that was originally played by Michael Jordan. Um, and this is, I did see confirmation, this is a reboot and not a sequel. Um but yet, I mean, you, you you know as well as anyone that I am. There's no bigger LeBron hater than me. Um, <laughs> so I, I hesitate to get behind this movie. But you know, I, I was a Space Jam fan as a kid. I, I do want to say that I don't believe Ryan Coogler is directing this movie. He's just producing it. But uh, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I guess I just saw his name involved and assumed he was directing. Yeah. No. I. But like, I hear what you're saying about like not liking LeBron. But like, I really liked him in Trainwreck. I don't know if you saw that movie. He was pretty funny. He's like, well, I mean, I, I mean, I don't like him as a person, but that's fine. I don't know about his acting jobs. You're but, within uh, your right as as a human being to dislike him as a person, but I think this could be quite good. Yeah, no, it, I mean, I think it'll be fun, and I'll, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely gonna go see it. Um, and I'm glad that I'm glad that LeBron finally agreed to do it because, like, for so many years, he just like was refusing to do it, um, which is kind of childish, but. That's LeBron for you. But I anyway, know, man. He's, um, he's just busy being one of the best basketball players of all time, so can't blame him for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah that, honestly, you just had kind of a hot take there by saying one of the best of all time. So a lot of people would, would come for your life for not saying that he was is, he is the is best, the best of, all of all time. Yeah. Sure. Um, but we won't get into MJ uh, versus LeBron on this. But um, Thank God. So next thing, this has to do with TV more than anything, but I think it is you know relevant to discuss. But the Emmys were last Monday and had one of their worst rating, might have been their worst ratings ever, like or in a long time um, TV ratings. Um, I mean, but like, why were they on a Monday though? <laughs> I don't, well, that's what I was gonna say. Like I, the Monday night just seems so weird, and like I think it has to do with like I think it does change networks who gets it, and like this year NBC had it, and of course NBC has Sunday night football. Um, so I think like Sunday night, which is normally when you would see these award shows, like they had a conflict, they couldn't really get around cause you got Sunday night football, but still, I mean, Monday seems like a really weird time to have it. Um, and I mean, I watched a little bit of it, um, and it was all right. Like it was cool to see like Henry Winkler, for example, won best supporting actor in a comedy for Barry. And like, he's been nominated like he, you know, like I, I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't remember. Like, yeah, like tons of times. The first time was it like forty three years ago or something. You know, when he was playing the Fonz on Happy Days, and <clears throat> so it was great. Like, because everyone, you know, was was really excited for him. He was obviously really excited. He had a speech that he wrote forty three years ago, or at least that he claimed that he did. You know, when he was first nominated. So that was cool. So stuff like that, you know, sort of those organic moments like that, really cool. Like. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel took home like a ton of stuff in the comedy category, uh, which I uh, I was glad to see that Amy Sherman Palladino was getting recognition as a fan of Gilmore Girls, um, which I think don't didn't ever really get any recognition at the Emmys. Um, I, I'm happy for um, for Amy Sherman Palladino, and that's that show, Miss Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, is definitely one that I want to check out probably after I finish up the season of BoJack. Um, it's just a classic example of like the like the awards timelines just not being aligned properly because this movie cleaned up at the Golden Globes earlier this TV year. Show, yeah. Did I say movie? My bad. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, this TV it's show so. cleaned up at the Golden Globes back in January. Our very, you know, our original pilot episode of this podcast, we talked about it. Yeah. And it's now nine nine months later, eight months later, still winning awards just because, like, the, it's Yeah, for the fake season. Like, yeah. They still haven't even had a second season. Yeah. E- exactly, yep. Um, but then uh, the assassination of Johnny Versace was the big winner in the... Uh, of course it was. Miniseries and movie category ryan murphy of course cleaning up again darren chris winning for best actor there um and then in the drama category we had kind of a mixed bag so well uh, i i one second i do want to say that like for those yeah. for those un unfamiliar the assassination of gianni versace is the quote-unquote second season of the american crime story anthology series which is the people versus, people versus Simpson. OJ, yeah so it's the follow-up uh, season of that. Did, did they announce that they've announced the third season already, right? Yeah, and I think it's going to be about the Patty Hearst kidnapping, but I, I might be wrong about that. But um, I know that they've announced it. I know that they've said what it's going to be about, but I can't remember. I think um, it's, uh, no, I think it's going to be on uh, the uh, Hurricane Katrina. Oh, that's right. I remember they they were going to do that. Okay, okay, yeah. That yeah. Be, I mean, that's going to be interesting. I didn't really get into and then, the assassination of Johnny Versace. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but I think that season... I tried to watch it, but... It's also got a fourth season. Um, on, well, at least it has a fourth season renewed for, which originally yeah. was going to be the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal, but I think oh. that's, like, too hot of a topic right now for them to actually cover. <laughs> yeah, so too, think, too, uh, too real. Too of the moment, yeah. Yeah, so I think, um, they've, I think they've actually scrapped it, and they're not, they, they no longer have said what their fourth season's going to be yet. Yeah. But, okay, so, but anyway, in the drama categories um, at the, the Emmys, um, we had kind of a mixed bag. So in the supporting actor and actress, we had Peter Dinklage for Game of Thrones and Tandy Newton um, for Westworld. Uh, Westworld. And then in the lead actor and actress, we had, um, we had Matthew Reese winning for The Americans. And then for lead actress, uh, we had, who did we have? I can't even remember now. The lead actress in the drama series? Yeah. Uh, I believe it was in drama. That would have been Claire Foy won for The yeah, Crown. Yeah, for The Crown. That's right. But then that there was also um, Elizabeth Moss from The Handmaid's Tale and Carrie Russell from The Americans. And I assume Evan yeah, Rachel Wood a, from Westworld. It was a loaded category. Yeah. But yeah, so kind of a mixed bag. But then it was Game of Thrones, actually, which took home um, Best Drama Series. I think the third time it's won, maybe, for that. Um, second right. or third, maybe. Um, but yeah, the, it shows, you know, there's, there's all these new shows which are making noise like Handmaid's Tale and, and, uh, Westworld and all of these, but it's still the old favorite in Game of Thrones that, um, is cleaning up for, for David Benioff and, and co. Um, so that's kind of your, your Emmys wrap up. And then last but not least for this episode, um, your boy, Michael B. Jordan, um, yep has been cast uh he's been they're trying to cast him in everything nowadays but something that he's been cast in is he's gonna play john clark which is another uh a tom clancy character of course the jack ryan series just came out with john krasinski but this uh john clark is a character sort of in the in the rainbow six yep. um universe and so I, I i can't i don't know if this i think it's gonna be a movie um and i the, from what I read, they're like they're planning to have sort of a, a franchise of this, maybe like several yeah. I, movies. I heard um, that he signed on for a couple movies. Um, yeah, 
But I joked, well, I joked to myself, I didn't joke with anyone, but uh, that this is like the, this is the prequel to um, Black Panther. Huh. Yeah, that would, now that would be something. Um, well, no, it's because Rainbow Six is like military ops and stuff right, like that. Right, 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 so. sure, sure, sure. Um, also, on your Emmys note, I just want to point out that the uh, Emmys, uh, so do you know uh, which, which uh, show won for Outstanding Directing for a Variety Special? Uh, was it? It was John Mulaney or something, right? No, it was uh, Glenn yeah, Weiss won, right? for the Oscars. <laughs> they gave an award to the Oscars. Oh yeah, I, I don't know if you saw this video too, but it was the guy. The guy uh, proposed to his fiance on stage. Oh, actually. Yeah, the oh, guy who, the guy who won for directing the Oscars. Um, Interesting. That was like one of the big moments of the night, I guess. But. Um, cool. Yeah, that, it's that's funny for. Yeah. I mean, he's won like fourteen Emmy awards, so. Wow. Yeah. That uh, that's something. Who was it that recently just won an EGOT? Oh, it was John Legend. Yep, John Legend. John Legend, welcome to the EGOT Club. Um, okay, well, I think that should just about do it for this week's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Um, uh, Scott, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at, at @shelton2013. Where can people find you? You can find me at Scarvy Dent. Uh, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you'd like to support the show, don't forget about our Patreon page. But if you choose not to support our Patreon, that's okay too. We would love it if you rate it, if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes, so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode in two weeks, on which, God willing, we will be reviewing. Venom and A Star is Born, two big ones that I'm excited for. It, se- um, it seems likely. The- these movies will definitely get wide releases on those days. That's true, but you never know when a hurricane's going to sweep through or something. But uh, Too real. For, for, for now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, we'll see you next time. See you, everyone. Yeah.